Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 16. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And right now, man, right now, there's a lot to be angry about. Maybe more than any other time since we've been doing this show. And we're going to get into it. Later in the show, I'll have some actions for you to take and ways to make positive impact. And coming up, we've got an incredible and captivating discussion with Soledad O'Brien, an angry American that's shaping the national discussion in many critical issues, and most relevantly right now, around race. It's a time of heat in America, and I want to bring you some light. But first, we got to talk about the heat, all the heat, because right now, there's a lot of it in this country. And I'm not talking about the standard summer in America heat. This is some entirely new shit. This is entirely new political and social heat. It's hot, it's dangerous, and it's important. People nationwide are angry, really angry. And I'm angry. And I think with good reason. And I think all Americans should be angry too. Because this week, Donald Trump showed the world again clearly that he is a racist. This week, many folks who didn't believe it, folks who didn't want to believe it, saw clearly in the black and white letters of a tweet and in the spoken words that follow that Donald Trump is a racist. Does it concern you that many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that point? It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. Many people do not agree with him. The only people I think who agree with him are white nationalists, hate groups, racists themselves. This whole thing is outrageous. It's infuriating. And it's sad. It's sad that America, all of us, will forever be stained by the fact that he is our leader. It's almost too much to digest. Almost. So let's digest it, analyze it, and develop a plan to deal with it. Because we used to say when I was in the Army, whenever there's adversity, you must improvise, adapt, and overcome. And that, that's what America's got to do in this pivotal moment. If you were on vacation or turned off the news a long time ago to save your sanity, let me fill you in. So Trump sent a tweet targeting four female lawmakers of color, suggesting that they, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. He told them to go back from where they come. They're all from America. They're all American citizens. He told freshman representatives Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Ilan Omar, all outspoken Democrat women of color who have challenged the administration's, I think, inhumane immigration policies, he told them to leave the country. All four of them are American citizens. All four of them are duly elected members of Congress. Three of them were born here in the United States. But it's not just his words that are racist. It's also his policies. Policies that are hurting Americans and dividing Americans nationwide and at our core, 
And that's what makes this not just another political drama, not just more clickbait for news websites. It makes it dangerous, not just for his targets and not just for people of color, but for all Americans. A divided America is a weakened America, and the world is watching, and our enemies are watching. It's been well documented now that the Russians have actively attempted to create more racial division in America. They love seeing us rip each other apart, and they're not the only ones. North Korea has suggested it might now call off its 20-month suspension of nuclear and missile tests because of the summertime U.S.-South Korean military drills that the North calls preparation for an eventual invasion. So the North Koreans are testing us. They're calling off their suspension of nukes. Of course they are, because they can see America's dysfunction and division right now, and they will surely push to capitalize on it. There's a provocative must-read piece this week in the Daily Beast by Goldie Taylor, and one that everyone should consider. The title is, Trump is a Racist, and if you support him, so are you. Goldie Taylor powerfully lays it out, saying that, quote, the president keeps bearing his ass, and the people talking about his clothes as he does so are part of the problem. There's a lot of truth in that. I mean, she, she lays it out. We all know it. Make America Great Again was always about appealing to the lowest common denominator, a really hateful sector of the electorate that believes that some of them are culturally superior by skin color or religion or ethnicity. This was all happening years before Trump even became president. He used to talk about racist conspiracy theories about President Obama. He said he was going to send investigators out to prove that Obama was not born in the United States. He attacked immigrants from Haiti, El Salvador, from African countries. He called foreign nations shithole countries. Those are his words, shithole countries. He once said immigrants from Haiti all have AIDS and that Nigerian immigrants would never, quote, go back to their huts. Trump also went after a Mexican-American judge. He said that the judge's Mexican heritage made him incapable of fairly ruling in a case against one of his companies, and he believes that, quote, laziness is a trait in blacks. That's a quote. Trump's real estate company was sued for housing discrimination back in the 70s, and they took a full-page ad out in the New York Times calling for the execution of five innocent black teenagers that made up the Central Park Five. They were later exonerated, but of course, he never took it back. And when Charlottesville happened and there were white supremacist protests, he said there were very fine people on both sides. That's the pattern. That's the policy. That's the person. But it's not just his words. It's the policies. As we have this discussion, as he tweets these things, ICE is right now raiding families nationwide. They're trying to sweep up undocumented families for deportation, sowing fear and division and scaring the shit out of people. And then there's the Eric Garner decision. This is a policy decision. This is bigger than just the words. The NYPD officer that was involved in Eric Gardner's chokehold death will not be charged. Federal prosecutors said this week they won't bring criminal charges against the white cop 
in the 2014 chokehold death of Eric Gardner. If you don't know, he was a black man who was choked to death by the cop and his dying words, I can't breathe, became like a rally cry for the nation as they confronted this history of police brutality and an issue. The decision to end the years-long civil rights investigation was made by Attorney General William Barr, Trump's Attorney General, Trump's DOJ. It was announced the day before the five-year anniversary of the encounter, just as the statute of limitations was about to expire. So this is more fuel on this fire. It's stunning. Chokeholds are banned by the NYPD, and I think the officer should be held accountable. But the fact that Trump's DOJ and Barr specifically made this call at this time is sure to add significant, dangerous pressure to this powder keg that is our entire country on race right now. And it's not just Trump. It's his whole crew who are just about all white, but not only men. Guess who showed her ass? Kellyanne Conway as she often does, and she backed up Trump's culture of sloppiness and nastiness and racism. A reporter was pressing her about these issues, Andrew Feinberg, on the White House driveway. And here's that exchange. If the president was not telling uh, these, uh, these four congresswomen to return to their supposed countries of origin, to which countries was he referring? What's your ethnicity? Why is that relevant? No, no, because I'm asking you a question. My ancestors are from Ireland and Italy. My my ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. No, no, it is, because you're asking about, he said originally. He said originally from. So she asks him, what's your ethnicity? That doesn't help. That is confirming this culture of resistance toward any kind of hard questions, any kind of criticism, and deflecting to questioning someone else's ethnicity. And it got a little bit worse. A lot of us are sick and tired of this country, of America coming last, to people who swore an oath of office, sick and tired of our military being denigrated. Hold it right there, people. And cue the politicization of our military. Yet again, this administration trying to use our military as a political shield against fair, legitimate, hard questions. This is a cowardly and shameful play they call often in this White House. This is not okay. None of this is okay. But it's also not abnormal. It happens every day in America. Maybe it happens often where you live. Maybe it doesn't. But it does happen often in America. And now, it's on video. It's out in the open, and it's oozing out of the White House. And that starts at the top, with Trump himself. And to underscore how dangerous it is, it's contagious. His command climate, his attitude, his example is contagious. I talked in last week's pod a bit about what happened when I referenced Senator Kamala Harris in a tweet recently. And I want to recount that for you because it shows how contagious this racist, nasty attitude is from Trump and how it infects other people and creates a culture of racism. Ever since I mentioned Kamala Harris in a tweet, 
the torrent of horrendously insulting, racist, misogynistic, and obscene things tweeted at me about Kamala Harris by Trumpers and trolls is like nothing I've ever seen. I told you last week, it was compounded when Fox News's Laura Ingram fired off a tweet at me. And then it was boosted by actor Christy Swanson, apologist from Trump and star of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who also followed on. But it was a unique experience for me, to say the least. It was probably not a unique experience for Harris. I thought Harris had a good quote about Trump's 4th of July thing, and she did. I'm an observer and a critic of politicians of all sides, and I'm not even a Harris supporter or a Democrat, but I'm a supporter of civility and respect. And the lack of civility and respect shown towards Harris in public forums consistently is just a glimpse into what she, her family, and her campaign must be dealing with every day and will definitely only increase in the days ahead. And it's unique to her as a black woman. This is a moment and an example this time in America of how Trump's toxic leadership climate and personal example are most dangerous and most destructive. Now, I'd love to think we can appeal to him to be more constructive and mature, but we know that ain't going to happen. Instead, I think it's critical that we name it and we plan around him as a nation for it. And that starts with explaining to those that will listen that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. And even though the president won't condemn it, that we as leaders and as citizens will, we set the tone. We're the ones who can push back and throw flags on hatred. The 2020 election is about so many things, and it's a giant gut check for America. But most of all, I hope that afterward, our country isn't so damaged by this election that it's beyond repair. And that starts with all of us, regardless of party, maintaining and protecting the norms and civility and respect that should define us as Americans. It should start at the top. But for now, it must start and continue everywhere else. Our children are watching and our future is at stake. Stakes is high. And most Americans are calling Trump's tweet racist. Most Americans understand. There was a USA Today poll that said most Americans consider Trump's tweets, quote, un-American. So I do think this is different. We'll get into that much more later with our guest, Soledad O'Brien, but I do think this is different. This is kind of a tipping point for white people, people who are more comfortable talking about what's American than what's racist. It's not a tipping point for people of color. It's not a tipping point for people who already clearly understood what racism looks like. It's a tipping point for the people who don't, which is mostly white people. Not most white people but it is mostly white people. Even more than a tipping point, maybe it's a final test of integrity. The tweet is racist. It's clearly racist. But will you have the integrity to say so? It's a test for the people in the media who were afraid to call his actions racist until now. Now we know who we can trust to have integrity and who we can't. It's a test point for Republicans most of whom are failing. GOP Representative Will Hurd from Texas, the only black Republican in the House, on Monday called President Trump's tweets, quote, racist and xenophobic. He was the first Republican in the House to do so. 
predictably. He said, the four women he is referring to are actually citizens of the United States. Three of four of them were born here. That's what Heard said on CNN. Quote, it's also behavior that's unbecoming of the leader of the free world. Representative Michael Turner of Ohio became the second GOP lawmaker to condemn Trump's tweets about the group of Democratic lawmakers and called it racist. He tweeted that the incendiary comment was racist, and he called on Trump to apologize. He tweeted, quote, Donald Trump's tweets from this weekend were racist, and he should apologize. We must work as a country to rise above hate, not enable it. That's Representative Michael Turner from Ohio. Joni Ernst also broke ranks and said it. She's a Republican senator from Iowa, and this is a big deal politically. Ernst is very conservative, and most of all, she has high aspirations for her own political future. She's also a veteran, and she should have a higher standard for leadership and integrity than the average politician. But watch her closely now and in the next year, because they're watching the rest of the country. I don't think most politicians are leaders. I think most of them are followers, and they will follow the American people. And a clear majority of Americans right now say that President Trump's tweets targeting the four minority congresswomen were, quote, un-American. That's the USA Today Ipsos poll. Most Republicans say they agreed with his comments. And this is the best illustration of how deep the partisan divide is on issues of patriotism and race, which Trump very dangerously and intentionally continues to weave together. In this poll, more than two-thirds of those aware of the controversy, 68%, called Trump's tweets offensive. That's overall. Among Republicans alone, however, 57% said they, had, they agreed with the tweets that told the Congresswomen to go back to their, quote, original countries. And a third, quote, strongly agreed with them. Again, all four of these American lawmakers are American citizens. So this is the story in America. But it's not the only story. There is other big news, and it is related to our patriotism. As all of this unfolds, as our nation is divided and our enemies salivate, we still have no confirmed Secretary of Defense. Haven't had one since December of last year when our friend General Mattis left. Now that may finally change in the next few weeks. While everyone was covering Trump's tweets, this week, Mark Esper face confirmation hearings to potentially become the next Secretary of Defense. But before that, in the days before that, on Monday, Navy Secretary Richard V. Spencer, V. Spencer, not the other Richard Spencer, who is the white nationalist. This is how tricky this week has been. But Navy Secretary Richard V. Spencer became the third acting Secretary of Defense since January. The third. It's been a complete mess in leadership at the Pentagon ever since Mattis left. But don't worry, they just run our wars and stuff. Now let's dig deeper into the Esper nomination, because I think there's some important stuff there that got missed while everyone was focused on Trump's tweets and how he's a racist. Now there's a problem with Esper. He used to work for Raytheon. Raytheon is a defense contract. Now, now remember, his predecessor, Shanahan, was an executive for Boeing. Now, maybe in a normal administration, you think someone from the corporate sector can be trusted. You don't have to worry about conflict of interest, but not in this administration. And in my view, never at the Pentagon. In my view, if you worked at a defense contractor, you should be disqualified 
from serving in the Pentagon. I think that should be the minimum standard. Not every senator agrees with me. But at a minimum, you should agree to take yourself out of any decisions involving your former company. But not Esper. And one senator has been on top of this, and I think she deserves credit for protecting the integrity of the Pentagon and, in essence, protecting our troops. It's Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, who knows a bit about integrity and knows a bit about oversight. She created the Consumer Protection Bureau and has had a history of protecting the little guy from corporations. Here's Elizabeth Warren grilling Esper in the hearing this week in Washington. Secretary Esper, prior to becoming Army Secretary, you were the top lobbyist for Raytheon, which of course is the nation's third largest defense contractor. Now, under current ethics rules, you're prohibited from participating in any decisions involving Raytheon for two years after your appointment as Army Secretary. But because you have already been in government for 20 months, that recusal period is set to expire in November which means you will soon be able to participate personally and substantially in matters involving your former employer. That's a conflict of interest given that Raytheon does billions of dollars worth of business every year with the Defense Department. So, Secretary Esper, your predecessor, Acting Secretary Shanahan, committed to extend his recusal from all matters involving his former employer, Boeing, for the duration of his government service. If you're confirmed, will you do the same and commit to extending your recusal from any and all matters involving Raytheon for your the duration of your tenure as Secretary of Defense? You know, Senator, we had this discussion in your office. Yes, we did. We this discussion a couple of years ago. You know, on the advice of our my ethics folks at the Pentagon, the, the career professionals, uh, no, the recommendation is not to. The belief is that the screening process I have in place uh, all the rules and regulations so, uh, and, look, and law that I'm... So let's just cut to it. You're are, not going to do what Secretary, Acting Secretary Shanahan agreed to do, and okay. that is agree not to be involved in decisions involving your former employer where you were head lobbyist for the duration of your time as Secretary of Defense. Senator, I, I can't explain why he made that commitment. We obviously come to the... He was, uh, but you are not willing to make the same commitment. Is was, that right? He was fulfilling a different role than I am, and he obviously. You are has, unwilling to make that same commitment. Is that right, Doctor? He Esper? has a different professional background. Than I'll I take am. that as a yes. You're unwilling to make that commitment. That is not the only ethics problem with your nomination. Part of the deal you got from Raytheon when you left as their top lobbyist was at least a million dollars in deferred compensation after 2022. Now, the law prohibits you from participating in matters that would affect Raytheon's ability or willingness to hand you this massive payout. But there's a catch. In a recent memo, you detailed an exception to your ethics obligations by writing that you can get a waiver to participate in matters that directly and predictably affect Raytheon's financial interests if it's, quote, so important that it cannot be referred to another official, end quote. This smacks of corruption, plain and simple. So here's my question. Will you commit that during your time as defense secretary that you will not seek any waiver that will allow you to participate in matters that affect Raytheon's financial interests? Well, Senator, let me correct the record with regard to what you said. At any time in the past 20-some months, to include the last three weeks, did I request or seek or receive or be granted any waiver? I, 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 I appreciate, my, Dr. Esper, that you have not in the past asked for one, but you have, you're have you the one the who has detailed an exception to your ethics obligation 
by saying that you can seek a waiver in the future. And so I'm asking, if you're confirmed, will you agree not to seek such a waiver? I think it's a fair question. It's a yes or no. I have other ethics issues I'd like to cover. I know, but I I would like to, I I think this is a good debate. No, I'm not trying to have a debate. No, I I know, but I'm trying to to assure you. You will agree not to seek such a waiver. So uh, let me just read to you. This is a letter from the director of the Standards of Conduct Office. I'll it take says, it then as a no, you will not agree not to seek just, such a like waiver. Trim, I, like this, I, I like have a third question to ask. There's a lot more, but Warren is hitting a bullseye. This reeks of potential corruption. And our Secretary of Defense, his integrity, his conflict of interest should never be in doubt. If he can't recuse himself from contracts related to his former employer that he could potentially benefit from, he should be disqualified. He should be disqualified. That is the position of any concerned American. This is exactly what General Eisenhower warned us about when he said, beware the military industrial complex. This cuts to the core of potential corruption in the most powerful and largest part of our federal government. The Department of Defense is the place that controls the lives of our sons and daughters, controls our nukes, and controls the largest budget in the federal government. And the guy or gal running it should be beyond reproach. That's the bottom line. Also of note, Mark Esper wasn't asked a single question about Afghanistan, about the war in Afghanistan, the place we have troops right now fighting and dying the place where 12 troops have died this year. It's outrageous, but it's no longer surprising. That's why I've been using the hashtag Forgotistan. Many of our brothers and sisters feel like Afghanistan is forgotten. And with good reason. Forgotistan. That's what it is. You don't believe me? Think about the fact that this weekend, Sergeant Major James G. Sartor, was killed by small arms fire in Afghanistan while deployed with the 10th Special Forces Group. While everybody else was focused on Trump's tweets, rightfully so, Sergeant Major Sarter died in Afghanistan. And not a single senator could bother during that hearing to talk about him or to talk about Afghanistan. Between Iraq and Afghanistan, Sergeant Major Sarter was deployed in 2002 2006, 2007, 2009, 2010, 2017, and 2019. He first deployed in 2002 and six more times after that. The civil-military divide has never been deeper in the history of our country, and the stakes have never been higher for our Secretary of Defense. Esper's likely to go through, because in my view, the Senate is full of weaklings and cowards, and some who are just lazy. And yeah, we'll finally have a Secretary of Defense that's not merely acting for the first time this year, one that's been confirmed by the Senate. But we shouldn't be happy about it. We should be able to do better. But this is an age of constant, nonstop political disappointment. But it can't last forever, right? Which brings us to the next issue that you need to know about. 2020 matters, right? Duh, of course. But the crowded Democratic field is quickly thinning. And the best way to see it is by looking at the fundraising updates that are released by all candidates, as they must be by law. And there are some key takeaways that happened that you should know about. Mayor Pete 
has emerged as a surprise fundraising star of the cycle. He's a favorite of both the major financial bundlers who collect these $2,800 contributions and small donors who give 200 bucks or less. Buttigieg now has more than 400,000 contributors. Following behind him were Biden at 2.1 million, Senator Elizabeth Warren, 19 million, Bernie Sanders, 18 million, and the surging Kamala Harris with nearly 12 million. Harris, more than any other candidate, especially as a former prosecutor, seems kind of built for this media landscape. And just as Beto O'Rourke and Mayor Pete have had in the past, Kamala Harris seems to be having a moment. The question is, how long will it last? And how much will it really matter? While Democrats are raising millions for this increasingly nasty and intensifying primary between each other and eating their own, as Democrats always do, President Trump and the Republican National Committee announced that they had already banked a massive $123 million for the 2020 campaign. $123 million. So as the Dems continue to fight each other, Republicans are loading up the beans and the bullets for the real fight. And also of note, there doesn't seem to be enough big or small donors to support all the Democratic candidates financially, which on some levels is good news. Already one candidate, Representative Eric Swalwell of California, has dropped out. Another, Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio, reported raising less than $900,000, far less than needed to run a nationally viable campaign. Mayor de Blasio of New York raised only $1 million, which does give me a degree of satisfaction, especially given the fact that the power went out in New York City this week, the same night I got back from vacation, and de Blasio was in Iowa. 72,000 people in New York were out of power at one point. No big deal, you might say. New York's a big city. Well, 72,000 people is about the same number of people that make up the entire population total in the city of Gary, Indiana, or Scranton, Pennsylvania, or Iowa City, Iowa. So there's that. Other candidates who also announced their fundraising total include Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, who raised $2.8 million, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, $2.8 million, and Senator Steve Bullock of Montana with $2 million. So Andrew Yang raised double what de Blasio did, and he's not even one-tenth as annoying. Maybe when they both lose, Yang can be the mayor of New York City. But watch the money, people. Unfortunately, and sadly, in American politics, that's often what matters most, and how we can keep score. Which brings me to the next urgent story that should be on your radar. The 9-11 first responders bill is not done yet. The Senate pushes on, and Rand Paul is blocking it. As I record this, Rand Paul is digging in and personally stopping the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Bill. But we do have 73 co-sponsors that are now on board. Now that the House of Representatives have passed what's now called the Never Forget Our Heroes Act, the Zadroga Pfeiffer Alvarez Permanent Funding of the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund. It's a long name, but it's an important one that, as I noted last week, now includes the name Alvarez. There are still some senators who have yet to sign on and co-sponsor the bill. So if by the time I drop this, it hasn't gone through, call them and let them know. And as I have in the past, I'm going to name names. I'm going to tell you who right now has yet to sign on as the co-sponsor of this bill. So call them and email them. Here they are. Richard Shelby, Alabama. Johnny Isaacson, Georgia. David Perdue, Georgia. Charles Grassley, Iowa. Mike Braun, Indiana. Mitch McConnell, Kentucky. 
Rand Paul, Kentucky. Bill Cassidy, Louisiana. John Kennedy, Louisiana. Cindy Hyde-Smith, Mississippi. Richard Burr, North Carolina. Ben Sass, Nebraska. James Inhofe, Oklahoma. James Langford, Oklahoma. Lindsey Graham, South Carolina. Tim Scott, South Carolina. Mike Round, South Dakota. John Thune, South Dakota. Lamar Alexander, Tennessee. Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee. John Cornyn, Texas. Ted Cruz, Texas. Mike Lee, Utah. Mitt Romney, Utah. Ron Johnson, Wisconsin. John Barrasso, Wyoming. And Michael Enzi of Wyoming. Not a sponsor of the 9-11 First Responders Support Bill. Every one of them is derelict in their duties. Every one of them should answer to your phone calls. Every one of them, in my view, if they don't vote for this, should be voted out. Because if you don't care about your 9-11 first responders, you really don't care about our national defense. You don't care about helping our helpers. And maybe you don't care about America. And as I mentioned, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky just officially objected to the vote on S-546 of the extension of the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. What the fuck is up with elected leaders in Kentucky? First, Mitch McConnell. Now this clown? We're going to need to clone Rob Sarah from the FDNY or the helicopter pilot Amy McGrath so they can go down to Kentucky and run against both of them. And I looked it up. Apparently, Raja Rondo, the NBA superstar, he's from Louisville, Kentucky. Maybe he can run. And apparently, so is George Clooney. The famously handsome actor was born and grew up in Augusta. He also makes some great tequila, which I have been known to enjoy from time to time. But he is from Kentucky. So is Jennifer Lawrence, the actor. And NASCAR champion Michael Waltrip, the two-time Daytona 500 winner, was born in Owensboro. So maybe they can all run against Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell. Because shit, Kentucky, these guys are not making you look good. Be thankful for the Kentucky basketball team and that damn good whiskey. Which is always a part of the show and will, of course, be a part of our interview coming up. So stay tuned for that as we make it a part of every Angry Americans guest interview. Speaking of which, and finally, in the news, Agen Poo is kicking ass. Our amazing guest from episode six, remember her? If you don't, go back and check it out. It was our Mother's Day special and a fantastic episode. Well, this week, Agen Poo led the massive and historic introduction of a national domestic workers' rights bill. The bill says it's finally time to legally stand up for the nation's millions of domestic workers. And the influential co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus and a top presidential contender introduced this new bill on July 15th. It was introduced by Pramilia Jayapal from Washington and Senator Kamala Harris, who we've talked about a lot. And this would bring a measure of job equity to one of the country's most exploited group of workers, maids, house cleaners, nannies, and home health care assistants among them, the people who care for us and our families. 90% of those 2.5 million workers are women. And the overwhelming majority are women of color, migrants into the U.S., or both. So the National Domestic Workers Alliance, headed by our friend Agent Poo, pushed the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights through nine states, and now they want to take it nationwide. Agent was quoted in the New York Times. For the first time in history, we have a chance to raise the bar for every domestic worker in our country and set the stage for all working people. That's some good news to lift your spirits in these dark political times. But there's no denying that race is a factor here too. Race is a factor in America now and always has been. So to deny it is to deny reality. Denying racism and the importance of it is like denying climate change or 
that the world is round or that measles are a real thing. Racism is real. And our president is a racist. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention because most Americans are paying attention. In January, a CBS News poll found that six in 10 Americans said that race relations are generally bad. It wasn't always that way. 60% of people didn't always think race relations were bad. The positive views on the state of race relations in the country actually peaked after President Obama's inauguration. In the April after that, 66% of Americans said race relations were generally good. But views started to go south in 2014, especially after all the high-profile shootings of black men by police officers. And it's gotten more and more negative in the Trump era. And the data is clear. Americans think it's Trump's fault. The poll from Pew Research Center earlier this year showed that 56% of Americans said Trump has made race relations worse. People have similarly bad assessments of the president's impact on specific racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. About 6 in 10, 60% of people considered Trump's actions to be bad for Hispanics and Muslims. And about half say they were bad for African Americans. That's according to a February 2018 poll from the Associated Press. Look, here's the bottom line. The poll also found that 57% of Americans considered Trump to be racist. 57%. Just wait and see what the polls are going to look like in a couple weeks after this latest debacle, which continues to get worse by the day. So even if you don't think he's a racist yourself, you have to now realize that most Americans do. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to dig into it in this episode and in this show as often as possible. And in this episode, it's with a guest who's been at the epicenter of all of it. In many ways, our country is on fire. And Soledad O'Brien is a woman on fire. Over the last few months, Soledad O'Brien has emerged as one of the most influential and watched critics in America on the media, politics, and especially on race. She doesn't just write about it, report about it, or tweet about it. She is about it. Her life's been about it. Her parents were both immigrants. They met as young students at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Her dad was a white guy from Queensland in Australia. Her mother was from Havana, Cuba, an Afro-Cuban. Interracial marriage was illegal in Baltimore, Maryland until 1967. So in 1958, Soledad's parents had to get married in Washington, D.C., where marriage laws were less restrictive. The family later moved to Long Island, New York, where Soledad grew up and eventually was accepted to Harvard. She left Harvard for a career in media, working as a journalist in Boston, New York, and San Francisco. She rose to national prominence at NBC and later at CNN as the co-anchor of the flagship morning program, American Morning. She's covered everything from school shootings to Hurricane Katrina and developed a reputation as a tough journalist who asks hard questions and takes no shit. She's also hosted for PBS NewsHour and Al Jazeera America and created the groundbreaking In America documentary series which included Black in America and Latino in America, and dug into issues of race, politics, and identity like nobody had really done before on television. And her work also spanned other critical parts of American culture. In 2013, she joined HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, an incredible show. And for a few years, she was the moderator of the National Geographic Spelling Bee, replacing Alex Trebek. She also led the I Am Latino in America tour, which had nationwide stops all across the U.S., She's also the president of her own media company, Starfish Media, and a sought-after public speaker. And with her husband, Brad Raymond, 
She also created the Powerful Foundation, which helps get young women to get to and through college. Soledad was named Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists and one of Newsweek's magazine's 10 People Who Make America Great. In 2013, she went back to Harvard to teach as a distinguished fellow, and was appointed to the board of directors of the Foundation for the National Archives. And recently, she moderated the Black Economic Alliance's first 2020 presidential forum on BET with four presidential candidates, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and Representative Beto O'Rourke. Each presented specific policy solutions to help Black Americans meaningfully participate in the economy. And recently, Soledad has become an influential force on Twitter with over 1 million followers, which is more viewers than her old network, CNN, gets in any given night in primetime. Throughout her life and her career, Soledad O'Brien has been exploring and redefining what it means to be American. Through her work, and even more so, through her powerful example, she has explored what America was, what it is now, and what it could become. She's lived a very interesting life and pulls no punches. She tackles the most important issues with no bullshit. And that's especially true when it comes to the president, the media, and the issue of race. There's no better guest to explore the state of our American experiment with than her. And nobody better to explore where that American experiment stands when it comes to race. It's an urgent, important, and exceptionally timed interview. And an exceptionally important topic. The topic we must cover and we must talk about, and one that I'll bring you today in the way we always do, ground in the four eyes that define this show, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. Race is one of the most important issues of our time, and definitely the most important issue right now. And we're not turning a blind eye. We're diving in, because the future of our country depends on it. This is Angry Americans on Race. Welcome to Angry Americans. Episode 16. Dress shirts. You ever worn a dress shirt? I think we all have. I mean, at some point. And subconsciously, it reminds us of a straitjacket. There is nothing fun about it. Very little upside. Even if you look good, you wonder why no one is making them more comfortable and making them better. Well, I got good news. Someone has made them better. And that someone is our friends at Mizzen and Maine. Mizzen and Maine makes dress shirts for men that are actually comfortable. Yep, you heard that right. Dress shirts that are comfortable. How? Why? It is their fabrics. They're innovative, super cool fabrics. Mizzen and Maine shirts are made with performance fabrics, like athletic fabrics. That means they stretch and move with you all day long in a dress shirt. And here's the other thing. We are now deep in the summer months. Hopefully the electricity doesn't go out where you live. But if it does, it's hot and the sun is beating down on us. The sweltering gaze is sucking out your energy and weeding out the weak. In a normal cotton dress shirt, you're like a sponge. You sweat and your cotton shirt soaks it all up and takes forever to dry. It's nasty. I've been there so many times. I'm often the sweaty guy, but not with Mizzen and Maine. Their performance fabrics dry quickly and wick moisture away so you never have to worry about looking like a mess. It's way too hot for cotton. And as I've told you before, 
They donate a lot to veterans. They are headquartered in America, and they've totally changed the game. NFL superstar and all-around badass J.J. Watt wears them. So does golfing legend Phil Mickelson, and that's because Mizzen and Maine performs. They get the job done. I'm very proud to have them as a founding sponsor of this show, and that's in part because their product is awesome. These shirts are wrinkle-resistant, making them perfect for travel. So if you're on the plane or you want to put them in your car, you can just pull them out of the bags, and you never have to worry about ironing. The shirts are easy, folks. They work, they're comfortable, and you can wash them at home without paying the dry cleaner, which will save you a ton of money. So head on over to Mizzen and Main's website at www.comfortable.af. Yep, that's really their website, www.comfortable.af. Use the code ANGRYAMERICANS at checkout, and you'll receive 10 bucks off a dress shirt right now. Mizzen and Main, check them out. It's never felt better to look your best. Angry Americans would like to proudly and excitedly welcome the great Soldad O'Brien to the show. Thank you so much. And, and I love that I have my carry size, handbag size, fireball. I ask everybody what their drink of choice is. Does anybody else pick fireball? No. Yeah. This is amazing. So I didn't fireball, realize that fireball was like Jägermeister. Meaning, fireball is serious. It's like I mean, a 20-year-old bro drink. It's a really surprising choice. I did not know it's that. I just thought choice. it was tasty cinnamon whiskey. What and I, then one day is? I ordered it at and a place. And I will, I will pour some Thank case, you. And they some. said to me that they didn't have it, but I could have Jägermeister. I was like, oh my oh, God. Oh, Jägermeister <laughs> is so much worse. I said, is it is it considered to be the same as Jägermeister? You know what? The only thing is that we generally go with American whiskey. So I had to oh. find out where Fireball is No, no. From. It needs to have a lot of sugar in it. Yes. And Fireball comes from Canada, apparently. Oh, I didn't know. Um, actually, now this one says Frankfurt, Kentucky. Oh. So, but it's a product of Canada. Yeah. Which might be fitting given current events because a lot of people are probably going to Canada today <laughs> given the way our president is reacting. Oh. But first of all, thank you for joining us it's on the show. I've been pleasure. excited to How try to How do I get an angry happen. t-shirt? You will get an angry I t-shirt. I promise you. I love you. that. But when I conceived of this show, I wanted to cover so many different topics. Mm-hmm. I wanted to cover politics. Yeah. I wanted to cover social and current events. I wanted to cover race. I wanted to cover the media. I wanted All to all linked together. Yeah. And 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 just the timing of this week made it a perfect time to talk right. to you right. because your career and your life has spanned all those things. All those things, yeah. So I humbly thank you for coming right it now at this my moment. Pleasure and my honor. And and because I think you have become in many ways, a very righteous voice for many Americans. I better drink my fireball. So we can toast to fireball go, to start. America. And hopefully not to the end of the Republic. Mm. I have great faith in our Republic, believe it or not. Can you expand on that? Because sure. this is this is a really crazy oh. time. Like right now, as we sit here, the president, is, there's this kind of maybe a tipping point. I'd ask you to shape it up as you see it, right? Maybe it's a validation of what many of us or others have seen. But the president has now tweeted something that it seems like most of America considers racist. Yeah. The, listen, uh, President Trump has been a racist and a bigot for a long time, and I've been highlighting it. And there's tons of data. That's not just my opinion. There's a, a, a ton of data and examples of it. Um, I think what I don't think it's a tipping point. I think what's sad, what really does break my heart, and I think we've seen this for a long time, is the number of elected officials who just don't want to say anything. And, and these are often people who... Um, talk a lot about their values and what they believe. Ben Sass wrote a whole book about how millennials are failing in their values compared to us older folks. And yet at the end of the day, when the moment comes to stand up and say, listen, we might not agree on a lot of shit, but like this 
crap is wrong. It's just silence. And that just kind of breaks your heart. You know, that, that actually makes me really sad. I don't think it's a tipping point. I don't think it, it matters in the bigger conversation. I think the media will run after it. It'll be a big hyperventilating story. It'll remove some of the focus off of the Epstein um, court date that we're seeing right now and what's unfolding there, which is crazy in and of itself. And, um, and everybody will go along their merry way. And as we move, you know, toward an election, people will have to decide who they want to vote for and who they want, you know, whose values will represent. Uh, the saddest thing for me has never been Trump. It's always been people that I like. I mean, like Mitt Romney. I, I, I don't think politically we're particularly aligned, um, but I think he's a decent human being. I think he's a good person. I think he's, he's got a reputation of being a, a, a good father and a good human being. Um, I think, um, Marco Rubio is kind of a, like a little bit of a wuss, but, um, and always has been, he just, you know, he has to take the temperature. Does it become a clarifying moment? There was a piece in the daily beast and I forgot the author's name where, where the, the title was Trump is a racist. And if you support him, you are too. So does this become a moment where you find out what Rubio is really made of, where you can really test Mitt Romney, you can test others and say, if you don't call him out now, then you're this. complicit. This is, is that, is that moment? Had, this is moment number 724, right? There've been so many of things that were just disgusting and despicable and where somebody who holds themselves to a higher value needs to say, this over here is not okay. And what we've really seen is that our elected officials are just very unwilling to do that and because they fear the the personal cost or their career cost. And that, that I find really sad, but I'm not surprised. Can it be an, an organizing moment? Cause you've covered, you know, race in America. You did a series on CNN called black in America, right? Can this be a, a rally point for organizers? I saw Presley, the Congresswoman from Massachusetts today um, said in, in a Boston globe piece that we are the squad, the, the four freshman uh, representatives that are all three or four of women of color. They're all born in America. And he's, he's now said, you know, go back to your country. But she's, I think smartly said, we are all the squad not just the four of us, but anyone who opposes him, anyone who, who feels that there is injustice, we are all the squad. So can this become a rally point for the opposition or for maybe moderates who are on the fence? I think we, we used to have a day where when someone said, remember there was a time when if someone said something crazy or racist or misogynistic, everyone would be like, well, I guess they're leaving their job. I guess they're going to step down. Three, two, one. Yep, they go. That doesn't exist anymore. And, and that actually is another, I think, very sad legacy of, of Donald Trump. There's a, um, a Chinese diplomat who was talking about D.C. today. I was tweeting what he said. I mean, just, just overtly racist, talking about, you know, the neighborhood, the southwest part of D.C. And how, and by the way, the guy, I think he's in Pakistan. Like, I think he's actually posted to Pakistan. It's like, right. shut the fuck up. You don't even know right. what you're talking about. <laughs> but but it's, it's opened up the doors for people to say racist and despicable things. And that is also really sad, but also that there's no... He'll keep his job. There's no cost to that. It won't matter. Everyone will be like, there's 10 other things going on. We don't care about this diplomat from China and what he has to say. In the past, that would have been completely disqualifying, right? Literally. Front page news that he was being kicked out and removed. No, it, it doesn't matter. And, and that's just very, that's very sad. But I think when you look back at things that have happened in terms of social justice in this country, I mean, a lot of things are worse. So I don't think it's going to be a tipping point, right? This is not Selma. This is right, not, this right. is just somebody who's uh, tweets and is disgusting, continues to tweet and is disgusting. And people who don't care continue not to care. And I think some of those people would say, 
I'm not a racist, but it's not disqualifying. I don't care. I'm not a misogynist, but it's not disqualifying. And that's in some ways even more sad. Can it become so that disqualifying for members of the media? Because I think part of why you've, your power has grown. You've got over a million followers on Twitter now. You are one of the most visible media critics in America. they stop asking yes, no questions? So, yeah, I want, I want to dig in on that. But oh, as, so as a very, as a watershed moment maybe for the media, for, like the, the media yeah, seems to now be finally calling this a racist finally, tweet, right? right? And, I think the, ABC, and, they're, and they're throwing about it. Right, ABC, ABC and CNN, GMA, right? CNN. Uh, and, and CNN said the president's racist tweet. So this does this become a test for the media? That train left so long ago. So sure, yeah, kind of. But I mean, the New York Times doesn't, right? I mean, people still say racially tinged. And the New York Times, I was tweeting a front page today um, that talked about, you know, I think just like inappropriate or whatever, you know. So trope is kind of like a like a like a middle ground word. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think anybody gives a shit if CNN calls today, two and a half years into the president, who, by the way, before he took office, I was saying this is. This person is embracing white supremacy on your air and you're giving him airtime. And this is basically a recruiting video. I right. said that to that to Brian Seltzer. So, you know, no, no one will care. The people who care, care. I think you will have a number of I look at sort of my husband who's not involved in covering race every day and just tries to go to his gig and come home. And, and you know, and he's he's like, I just can't believe like it's just so distasteful. And I think there are a lot of people who are like, this is just distasteful. And. For those who are on the edge, oh, the economy's doing well, but that they they will care, and then for others they won't care. Is it? I want to kind of stay on this because I think your influence is so important right now. Is it a teachable moment for the next generation? Because you are now, I think, for many a role model, especially for up and coming younger journalists, especially for people of I'm color. There, there was a time but that's why I can do it because but, but, I'm, I'm self employed. I would literally. Is that a reflection of the media too, though? Now you can be self employed. Uh, you yeah. can have a million Twitter followers. You can influence the national conversation without being at CNN. Like yeah, you, for people a long like time, they want you were, honesty. I think you, people do yeah, really authenticity, want right? authenticity in a sense. And I'm always like, listen, I will just call it bullshit where I see it. And I do, I do it because I feel like somebody needs to stand up for. This is crazy. I, the number of times I have to say, could you not ask yes, no questions? I forget the one that was asked today in the gaggle, right? Where, you know, something like, do you, do you regret saying this racist thing? You know, the, if, why would you ask that? Can you, can you explain for people who maybe aren't coming from a journalistic background, right? And just to frame this up too, sure. so that like our audience is pretty diverse. A lot of independents and unaffiliateds and people coming from all different political backgrounds. And maybe if they're not, you know, in the gaggle, and watching what journal, why is, why is that so important to not just ask yes or no questions? Because a yes or no question allows you to take that. I love when I get a yes or no question. It allows you to take that question any way you want it to go, right? Because you really can say yes or more likely no and go whichever direction you want. When you, uh, you, when you ask something that's pointed, the person either has to choose to disregard your question altogether or usually someone like Trump, who has a very healthy sense of ego, will attempt to answer it. So a better question is something like, why would you say something that's so clearly racist? I guarantee you, he would try to answer that versus, do you regret saying something racist? No, I didn't regret, you know. And then he bridges into something right, and else the, and, and the answer is, is of right. course he doesn't regret saying something. I mean, it's a, it's a stupid question on the face of it. So I, I, I get in a gaggle, it's kind of a moment and people are rushing and you're hoping to get heard, but I wish people would prepare better because we see that all the time, all the time, that they don't put thought into their 
question and frame it so the person has to like think. And especially in a gaggle, often if the person's not thinking, they'll, they'll give you an answer. So who's getting it right? Because part of what you are is almost like a referee. You're throwing flags on penalties and saying, hey, everybody, watch this in the media. This was right. This was wrong. But who do you look to as a voice that people can actually rely on or depend on for information or perspective or integrity? Maybe this show, I always talk about information, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. I think integrity is really important and it builds on that authenticity. Right. And, but- and integrity, by the way, I think someone can have incredible integrity and you could look at them and say, I would never vote for you. I'm not even sure I like you. And I disagree with these five things you're saying, but you are a person of integrity, right? You're that's what I always sort of say is like, you're a good human being and you believe some of these things that I completely disagree with. And I think that's what we're missing, the sense of this person has a, some honor to them. So who do you think those people are in the media especially? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I think the media one is a, is a, is a you, Who would you tell one. your kids to read or watch, right? Because I think that's a clarifier for I have to watch everything me. because I think they learn a lot from the bad. I really, um, I like Chris Wallace's hugentic asterisk on that because- um, He's not afraid. And so, uh, well, I'm not a fan of Fox News at all. I think they're disgusting in a lot of ways. I think he's he's never afraid of the person who's he's interviewing. And often others are afraid. They're clearly afraid, right? They, so they try to suck up to them. Right. I mean, I thought Chuck Todd interviewing President Trump was just a mess. And then people get on his show and just make stuff up and he he doesn't challenge them. I mean, he really is bad at the follow-up. He's, he's an excellent example of being terrible at a follow-up. Mm. really he's bad um and that's but, that's like the american standard though right you contrast it with the british media or somewhere else i think when jonathan swan from axios had kind of a hard-hitting interview what was perceived by american standards as a hard-hitting interview with uh with jared kushner it kind of popped off the page and he's got this kind of wasn't even more a hard-hitting aggressive. interview it wasn't by, by, right? by I mean, american you, well, you watch it was but in by terms american of standards its aggressiveness it did it in feel terms different of content yeah you're like you're just asking the same question over and over again that's not even a smart interview it just, it is. It's so frustrating. It really is. Um, but I wouldn't have expected you to say Wallace from Fox News is your well, first Well, he's answer. just not afraid. Yeah. I mean, I, I really compliment him a lot because when he goes in on people, he does a very specific thing that I used to do a lot that I like, which is you ask a question, you frame it with a piece of content. Let me roll this for you. Yeah, sir, blah, blah, blah. The right. person gives you some bullshit answer. You say, well, let me show you the clip. You run the clip, right? And then you follow up and right. it gives you a very structured so people at home watching understand the answer, even if the person's going to lie to you in the interview. Mm. And he does that very well. Ask a question, roll the tape, go back, follow yeah. up, ask a question. Just very good structure. I like that structure. I think, um, and he also is very knowledgeable. So he, it's hard for people to bullshit him. He just knows what he's talking about. And I think a lot of other people get run over because they're anxious and they're afraid of the person they're mm. interviewing. And, and they don't want to challenge people. And that's really unfortunate. I, I've been disappointed mightily in the New York Times, which just cannot figure out um, how to say things that are really clear. President Trump could wear a T-shirt that says, I'm a racist. And they would be like, well, I mean, it's kind of racially tinged, that T-shirt. I wouldn't go as far to say racist. They just can't help themselves. They, they, they trip over themselves all the time. They really need a public editor. It's an embarrassment. Um, but I, I, I do believe in reading everything because I think you steal pieces from, from everybody. What do you think of the role of the comedians who seem to have yeah. kind of stepped into that breach, right? It was Jon Stewart for yeah, a long time. Yeah. Now it seems Don't to be Colbert John Stewart? or, yeah. you know, is it Jimmy Fallon? Well, I think this is where we are now. We're in such a place where there's so much bullshit that comedians are just so good at pointing out the obvious, right? Part of covering Trump today, and it's kind of weird, right? At the White House press gaggle, 
The whole thing is just bullshit. You really want someone to just be like, this is just such a, we're all pretending to take you seriously. Some of your sentences make no sense at all. Like they're barely English. And and you're just like, blah, this is word salad. Um, and everyone, but everyone sort of takes it all seriously. And then they have conversations. Does the president this or that? And other people are like, I think he's just stupid. We, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. So so I, I, I think it's a good space for comedians because they can just call out like, this is crazy. This is stupid. This is racist in a way that reporters really hesitate to say stuff. I feel like I'm on the sideline saying it's just racist to say it's racist. But, you know, that's that's where we are right now. So you started by These saying... These chairs are weird. Aren't they weird? I yeah. apologize. They're, they're kind of space chairs. I, yeah. And we're again at the Classic Car Club. Like, so to our like, listeners, so you can totally... But then I can't actually see you. So it's all that for, for those who are listening. There's also <gasps> video at angryamericans.us. But all that is now kind of in a fetal position like with a fireball. Where a lot of Americans feel they should be right now in the fetal position drinking. But you, when you, when you look at this situation, you started this discussion by saying you're not concerned about the future of our republic. Oh, I'm not. And oh, so why not? Because I think we've been in, in, in worse places. And I think people are very, listen, I think there's a huge number of people who are very concerned and understand what's going on. I think, I think there's a lot of uh, people in the law trying to also figure it out. I'd be much more concerned if people didn't care. And we've had times when people didn't care. So I'm not. I think this is a, a, a huge moment, but but I don't think it's the end of the republic. I think you just have a lot of really corrupt people in and people are seeing it. And by the way, even people who are not particularly political. I think they find it distasteful. Who wants to walk around being angry all the time? And people don't feel good. I don't think your average person feels like the economy is serving them, even as the economy is doing better. I don't think the average person feels like it's a good time with their neighbors and they feel happy and secure and safe and the communities are strong. I think Many Americans, and if you look at the polls around immigration, in the high mid-70s, people sort of feel like, yeah, immigration, net positive, it should stay about the same, maybe a little bit more. You know, people aren't railing against immigration in uh, when you poll large numbers of Americans. So I think, I think people find it all very distasteful. So given that backdrop, do any of the candidates jump out for you? You probably can't do an endorsement or, or a prediction. God, Maybe I you want can, a lot of, if I'm going to do an endorsement, shouldn't someone give me a lot of money? What would I my endorsement know. be worth? I mean, I'm may- on Twitter so much it'd be worth literally $8. R- well, right? I, I, a glass of fireball. But, you, but, you're, but your influence is really powerful right now. Really? It I, I, I do. Like, I feel like I just tweet into the void and I don't think so. my children are I mean, like, you, oh my let, God, let's mom, break this down. I mean, you too you much. Have, we have to stop following you. You have over a million Twitter followers. So you probably have- they're real too. You have more people people absorbing your content than MSNBC had a couple years ago yeah, for most CNN shows that CNN time. has in prime time right now. Right. So that's the new dynamic. Yeah. You have a larger audience than CNN in prime time. Yes. That so changes everything. Half of them hate me. So Maybe, sure but half of the people that. who watch Bill O'Reilly probably hated him yeah, too. That's right. True. That's so, true. so comparing me to Bill O'Reilly? So, Thank you. No, no, huh. no, no. I huh. d- I'm, com- I'm comparing the format. out of my back, please? No, no, not at all. The <laughs> personality driven format, which you are now yeah, you know, a part of, right? Because people trust you. They trust your voice A million or so people. And then more either trust you to a point where they want to pay attention, right? So that empowers you to be a very, very influential voice, right? And that's why part of why I wanted to talk to you because I feel like you are a voice for many people who don't have a voice. Well, what I've tried so, to do on Twitter, truly, is yeah. to not worry about the audience and I just tweet what I want. I literally don't try to, you know, hit an audience. If someone tweets something that I find interesting, I'll, I'll retweet it or elevate it or have conversation about it. But I, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to do me. And if a million people join, fine. And if everybody tomorrow is like, ugh, I'm sick of her and they all leave, 
also fine. Like, I'm just doing it for me. What's interesting, I think, though, is when you're very straightforward and, um, and, and clear about how you feel about something, I think people appreciate that. Even the people who don't necessarily like you, um, I think, want to follow you for your perspective. So do you, do you think any of the candidates are emerging? I mean, you, you, if you yeah. want to project, you know, a year out, who do you see handling this complicated media landscape? Like part of why Biden, I think, has been struggling is because he's he's stumbled. Right. Yeah. He didn't do any interviews. He did poorly in the debates. He's not vocal on Twitter. It seems like in many ways. And, and I've been very, very um, focused on the what he represents in terms of a formidable opposition to right. Trump. But but on the media landscape, he seems to be struggling. Right. While yeah. AOC is is like the ninja master of all things social and media. And remember, right that now. brings a certain age demographic with right. right. So it doesn't necessarily bring the demographic that votes. Right. So if you were trying to, my parents passed away earlier this year, but if you were trying to reach them and they're yeah. they voted year after year, they'd be like, "What's an AOC? We right. have no idea." Right. You know, because they just wouldn't so have. Who's understood doing it that. well? Who's an who's so a multi sport athlete? For someone athlete, who's maybe, right? interesting to me is Elizabeth Warren, not necessarily in her policies. Um, but I find the way she uses social media, right? She, every day, posts about herself. She tells her own story. She talks about her dog. Yeah. She, right? So she has decided she's not going to wait for the New York Times to come to her door, that she is just every day going to put out a story about herself, and they do a very nice job on that. And it's unusual because of her age. I think it's hard for someone right. like a Biden to embrace, to really be a, a native in social media, unlike AOC, right, who's, who's a native. She gets it. She's used it. She, this is how she communicates. If she were not a congressperson, this is how she would communicate right, with her friends. Right. She's just doing what she does at the office. But this is how she does it. I think it's hard when you've been doing politics a different way to be 70-something years old and all of a sudden really figuring out how to use Twitter and social media successful. I think that's hard. I think Hillary Clinton actually struggled with that, right? Where they're Absolutely. like, and now I am presenting my next thing that I want to say to you people. It's hard. Um, it's just a different tone. It reeks of, it reeks of bullshit. It does. Right? Yeah. And, it's, and even if you're a very compassionate, honest person, it's just hard if you're not a native. Yeah. Um, for example, every morning my daughter Snapchats her friends, and they all do a Snapchat that's just the top of their head. Have you guys seen this? No. Right? I'm like, well, uh-uh. why the hell would you send a picture? But it, it's the thing. Just like from the nose up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's it. Got it. And I'm like, why? She's like, it's just a thing. That's how we... You wake up and you send everybody like, this is me today. And it's not, I'm fabulous. Look at my great angle. Yeah. It's just. Is it like the video? I've people... had to actually make sure I'm not in the shot because I look so insane. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you can't put this out. I look terrible. Have you but seen the video of people eating things? Yeah. Is, are your kids into that? No. 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 They thankfully. do like the unboxing. That's the unboxing. Just... Yes. My yeah. kid will watch a video Weird. of toys being taken out of the package. Like it's, you know, it's mesmerizing. But it's a whole other world. It's like hypnotism. And it's, it's a unbelievable. whole other, like, yeah. and who would have thought that someone doing that could make the, the candidate gyms. that does unboxing toys right. and eating sounds is right. going to generate. Tremendous well, I following. will say this. So I think uh, Kamala is interesting as well. I think she's yeah. got a lot. She's another one. She's a little bit behind Elizabeth Warren in terms of social media. She's much more like, I have a thing to pitch. Here it is. I have a thing to pitch. Here it is. Right. Social media is much more like, Hey, you know, I'm trying to decide, do I want to have waffles or do you think I should go for the eggs Benedict? I mean, literally, just blah, 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 blah. Um, I think she does a pretty good job. I'm surprised that both of them, what we did well in social media, which I actually got from a young rapper named Becky G, was anybody who follows you, you should follow them. Right. So I'm surprised that they, neither one of them follows a lot of people. It's like a respect thing. It's like you're shaking my hand. And I'm also shake yours. how cool to be followed by Kamala Harris. Right. So if you're going to go into Iowa next, 
follow a shit ton of people right who by right. the way will follow you who live in Iowa who are going to be taking part in all of these conversations follow 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 strategically so I'm always surprised like why are you following so few people if you really want to represent a lot of people and part of it is a uh, there's a little bit of an arrogance. Like I follow 12 people, but 25 million follow me. I follow anybody, anybody, you know, if they get annoying, I unfollow them. Um, but I really am surprised that the candidates don't do that. I like Joe Biden. I, um, I think he's having a hard time transitioning to a conversation that is nonstop. That is not about, I sit down with my favorite journalist and I frame it for them. Um, it's just a different time. I think Nancy Pelosi talking to Maureen Dowd was like, Wayne Dowd is so wrong about so much shit. Like, honestly, think of all the money you could make just betting against the prediction Maureen Dowd makes. Like, <laughs> we'd be freaking rich. It's um, a step away from sitting down with page six <laughs> at this point, right? But it's like, why? It's like sitting down with Cindy Adams and saying, like, let me tell you what's going on. So sitting down with yeah. Maureen Dowd, uh, but that's a very old school thing to do, right? right. I sat right. down and had my conversation. She'd be better off just tweeting. Let me tell you why the squad's driving me crazy. Right. A lot of, a lot of, right. at least people would right. respect that versus this, Unnamed sources tell us this and this and this. Um, but I, I like Joe Biden because I think he's a, a solid politician. I mean, I think he's a guy who's got a lot of integrity. I, I've always liked kind of what he stands for, even when I've been against right. some of the things that I think uh, the decisions that he's made. I was a little disappointing. I, I disappointed, especially in the busing conversation. Yeah. Every so often, I wish someone would just say, that's how I felt back then. Yeah, I, I felt that, and maybe I was wrong. Can we break down that moment? Because I, sure. I really think that that moment has so far been the closest thing to kind of a game breaker. Yeah. Like you're, yours. We have to get into sports because your sports background, yeah. I think, shapes your understanding. Great but that was it. like a breakout moment, yeah. right? That's when you saw the rookie running back pop off a sixty-yard run, and you said, "Wow, Saquon Barkley can run!" Right. Right? right? Like that was a moment where everybody said, "Oh shit, this is serious!" Right? So, what did you see with that interaction? Second night of the debate, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And, what, and, just, and, and even before and afterward, right? Well, because you know, it was, she, she kind of telegraphed him, it, right? She called him on busing yeah. and he yeah. didn't really have an answer, right? right? And, and it didn't really have an answer, which was a metaphor for, I don't really have an answer for all the past legislation. I've been doing this for a really long time. I just wish elected officials would just stand up. I, I really would not have had a problem if he said, listen, at the time, in the 1970s, I did not think that integrating schools through busing was the way to do it. I believed in integration. I supported integration. I thought busing was wrong. And my constituents were telling me it's wrong. Now, granted, my constituents were middle-class white people. Right. And, and the polls show that middle-class white people did not like busing, didn't have a lot of black people in my community. And maybe that's why I look back now and think probably could have done that differently. But at the time, and part of what I value in politicians is that they can learn from their mistakes. Yeah. I don't want the guy who's like, I'm always right. I never change my mind. Ugh. Do you think so, I, I, I wish he had just been more human than all of a sudden trying to defend something versus that was in the 1970s. And right. there's a bunch of people who thought that busing was the way to go. And there are a bunch of people who did not believe that. Just like the crime bill. I mean, I know we talk a lot about the crime bill, but there are a lot of people in the inner city who thought the crime bill was a good idea. I personally think the crime bill was a disaster. But there were pastors and African-Americans right. who thought, we need a crime bill, that this was a good thing. And so you could just say, I think, looking back now, it did not do what it was supposed to do. But at the time, we, people of good intention, did X, Y, and Z thinking such and such. It felt, it felt like a boxing moment, right? And you, you've, 
you've been on Real Sports for a yeah, long time, right? And HBO has, was, a, was a pinnacle of boxing Ooh. for so long. It felt like that moment where Drago's cut, right? Yeah. Drago's cut and he's cut. He's cut. What's going to happen? And you feel him struggling in the corner yeah. and the barrage is hitting Biden. He doesn't know how to get out of the corner. And Harris keeps coming at him like a trained and skilled and experienced prosecutor just starts to kind of pull him apart. But I had a theory that I don't know if it will be true, but I, I think over time is a bit provocative. On some levels, I think that moment may have helped Biden with the base that he is trying to secure and solidify that is similar to a Trump base in that him under attack, right? Which for many people is how it looked, right? right. It looked like a white guy under attack from a young black prosecutor, right? I saw a moment where Biden's base in some ways is like Trump's base and that they've already got their mind made up. Mm. They love Joe. They love Uncle Joe. You, no matter what Uncle Joe does, they're still with him because he's their guy. And did you see a potential, because of the racial dynamics, for that to actually help him with independent voters and maybe Republican voters, if we're talking about the general? Yeah, I think there's a whole... I'm not sure Republican voters, maybe, but I, I think for, for independent voters or even people who really are concerned about... Uh, the direction of the country going far to the left. I think calling it socialism is sort of silly, but being, you know, far more to the left, even this idea, like, should there be billionaires? You know, yes, right. I, I, I have zero problem. With, I hope to be one, maybe one day. <laughs> that would be great. But I mean, my, my bigger issue is not, should there be billionaires? It's how do we make education fair for everybody else? Uh, and maybe some of that is taxing billionaires in some capacity. But I think people who are very concerned, like, oh, is the Democratic Party shifting to the left? I think Joe is this sense of like, ah, he knows he's been around. He knows the game. He knows how it works. I, I don't know. And listen, I think it's early. And I think most people have not been even paying attention and have no idea who they're going to vote for. And we'll see how it all how it all lays out. So I have to ask you a question I ask of all guests. You know, this is angry Americans. And it's also about the righteous anger, the idea that there's good reason to be angry and we can channel that anger into positive outcomes. Right. The same kind of anger that created the revolution or fueled the civil rights movement, right? There's a lot of, I think, and many folks, I think, agree, reason to be angry. But what's something, Soledad O'Brien, that makes you angry? You know, I, I hate being angry. Isn't that interesting? I, um, I'm not, a, like, I don't love the emotion of being angry. Some people do. They like fighting. They're not me. I don't. Um, one thing that I find annoying, maybe is as far as I go, or really frustrating, is I just wish people would understand how... People like to talk about racism on a one-on-one -on -one thing. You know, he's a racist, she's not a racist. But they don't want to understand how institutions work. And they don't want to understand how history plays a role. And I think those things are very frustrating to me. So, yeah, sometimes I get, I get really angry when someone will say, you know, I just don't understand why black people don't blah, 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 blah. And you're like, well, if you had any understanding of um, history, you'd understand ways in which people have been cut out of things. And so your question is, or your comment is just stupid. Um, so I find that really frustrating because they don't want to know, right? If women wanted to do this, why don't they just blah, blah, blah? You know, I mean, uh, listen, I think those girls playing soccer, if they really just not enough people care about them, that's why they don't get paid enough. But you realize that's just bullshit. People don't look at those things as, as institutional and historical uh, wrongdoing, right? They don't connect the dots. They just think like for this particular team at this particular time, women are less interesting and so they're going to get less money. It's like, no, it's, it's actually linked through history. It's much more complicated. And, and that really does piss me off because it feels like you have to launch into a history lesson. Where I grew up in Long Island, 
um, you know, Levittown was not very far away. And Levittown was a community where white people started buying in these developments, tracks, you know. Those homes uh, improved in value very much. Black people were not allowed to live there. My people would not sell my parents a home because my mom's black was black. My dad was white. You know, so they could not move into the community where they wanted to live because of race. You know, and so this idea of like, well, you know, now 50 years later, when you see what what properties have increased in value and what have not, because banks would not loan people money. You could not improve your home because you couldn't get equity out of your property. You had to live in a certain area. That area sometimes wasn't near off ramps on the highway. Look at the history of Atlanta. Uh, You know, so all those things kind of conspire to put people in a bad spot. And so when people don't have a very nuanced understanding, that really does piss me off. I think that's right. <laughs> right on. Exactly. I mean, it, it, no, but it is. I mean, Levittown is, is, is an interesting, like, fault line, yeah. right? Because it's, you know, less than an, an hour from the city, right, from New York City, right? And people kind of think that racial divisions only happen in the South and don't look into the institutionalized racism of places like Long Island and Boston and New England, Let me right? tell you about <laughs> Strong Island, yeah. and I really <laughs> liked where I grew up. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's a very... Very racist, very racially uh, divisive at times. In fact, when I was writing my memoir in 2010, there was a lawsuit because Long Island wouldn't allow people to get Section 8 housing. They would mark for brown and black people on their applications so that they wouldn't get approved for Section 8 housing, right? And, and New Orleans, for example, has a, a in um, St. Bernard Parish, you couldn't get Section 8 housing if you didn't already live in Section 8, right? So only certain people who are in the community. Grandfathered in. Absolutely. I mean, these things are just overtly trying to keep certain people out. And they, in some cases, they weren't even, you know, sneaky about it. So when everybody acts as if somehow, and journalists maybe when I say everybody, as if Donald Trump, oh my God, we just discovered the other day that he's a racist. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, where have you been? This guy has been consistent about this for a long time. And when CNN does a really sappy piece about Melania Trump when she's like, she's a birther. And listen, I'm a big believer in respecting the first lady, but also you should know she is a birther. Just listen to her quotes on television. Right. I'm not attributing it to her as a, as a guess. Um, and then, then TV news won't ask that question. That's just sad, right? Because they, you know, it's a puff piece. So I want to come back to the media okay. and, and where we are, because you have been you know, a, a, an innovator, a trailblazer, a referee, a watchdog, many <laughs> different things for the media, but staying back in, in Levittown. Yes. So that O'Brien growing up in Levittown. I didn't. I grew up in Smithtown. Smithtown. Thank you. What was your but first? basically like Levittown. So that O'Brien, what was your first car? My first car was not growing up in Smithtown because my parents wouldn't buy me a car because they didn't have money for that. And I was one of six kids, so they certainly weren't going to buy me a car. My first car was only a few years ago, was the first car I bought, and it was a Prius. Wow. And I did not like it. So I switched to a Range Rover a couple years ago. That's a good upgrade. Yeah, that's a nice upgrade. Uh, I couldn't get up the hills in the snow in my Prius, so I had to swap out to something that could do hills. Um, But I was probably 45 years old when I got my first car. That's an amazing. What color was the Prius? Uh, it was gray, and it wouldn't start a lot. And I knew the people, and I wanted to get attention from a Toyota. I have to go on Twitter and be like, "My car is now broken down again at the such and such parking lot." Because otherwise, a surprising answer. Yeah, that's a surprising. I was answer. trying to be. Uh, listen, I really like the electric car. That that one was not ready for prime time. 
And it didn't hold anything. Polar opposites from a Prius to a Range Rover. Well, yeah, I think the Range Rover doesn't have terrible gas mileage, but it holds more stuff and it can get up a hill. And it holds kids. And it holds kids and it can get up a hill in snow. So it's a good car. I love it. Excellent. So going back to the media, when you were on CNN, um, you were, you've been called a, a trailblazer, an innovator. I mean, frame it up for people who maybe don't understand the historical perspective. And it wasn't that long ago. But how many other women of color were on television? Gosh, you know, a fair number. And I actually had had been on. The funny thing is we all looked the same. I mean, one day I was like, you know, Suzanne Malveaux, Frederico Whitfield. Uh, like, we all could be sisters, right? And, and uh, I was in a documentary called, I think called Light Girls, about sort of colorism, um, around black, dark-skinned black women and light-skinned black women. And I'm like, there's a reason why all the women look like they could be my sister because there is colorism in our industry and people have a preference. I mean, people who hire. Uh, I think that's changed, but just a little bit. And I think people have been very vocal about it, so that's helping it change. Um, yeah, you know, there was a handful. There was always kind of a handful. Uh, a great story. When I worked at CNN, I was doing a documentary called Latino in America. And our very first meeting, we were all around a table, probably 20 some odd people. And um, we were trying to discuss the number of Latinos who consider themselves American. And we were in a debate about whether or not to count Puerto Ricans. And I was like, oh, it was me and a producer named Rose Arce, who's a Peruvian. And then that was it. Everybody else was white. And, and the conversation became, I was like, we could just Google this. Like it went on for an right. hour about, I'm like, Puerto Rican, they, they count. Because it would make the difference if we said 48 million or 51 million. Right. It's roughly 3 million people. And we literally had this debate. And I actually was like, this is the team we're doing Latino in America with when they really don't have a clue about something that's Googleable, right? That, that was right. very problematic. So um, we killed that and we started again anew with a different team of people. But, but that was kind of a classic situation where people who really aren't experts feel like they can jump in and don't necessarily want to learn from what they're seeing around them. They want to say like, well, this has always been my perspective. I have a colleague. Uh, we overlap just a little bit at CNN. Uh, she's from Texas, but right on the Mexican border. And people all the time would talk about her journey to America. And she's like, I'm from Texas. <laughs> I mean, obviously she speaks Spanish fluently, <laughs> but you know, it's like, but the challenges that you at, directed at you came from all sides. Jesse Jackson challenged you, right? I mean, you've written Jesse and spoken Jackson about used this. To say Can you all tell the time. that story? Yeah, and you know, when we read lunch maybe- one day and he pinched the back of my hand like like this. And he's like, you don't count because we were talking about race. And, you know, and later we, we talked about it and he said he just didn't think of Caribbean black people as African-Americans. And I think there is a mindset of people who believe that way, that right. they think Caribbean. I mean, you know, again, I think that's sort of um, naive and and uh, not really even accurate, but yeah, you know, it just you you end up talking about race so much. I really loved reporting on race and covering race, but you just it just becomes your life all the time. I mean, it's really frustrating. It's such a it's such an annoyance, and it's really annoying in um, in reporting where you have to frame things. Like again, CNN today acting as if they discovered the cure for cancer. Like we've decided President Trump is a racist, and you're like, oh my god, everybody else got there first. Like literally, a lot right. of people have been saying this for a very long time. When when I started the concept of this show and I described it as Angry Americans, it's been interesting to be kind of a Rorschach test for how people respond. Oh, that's interesting. And I've found that um, over time, women have had much more comfort with it 
and have had much more comfort with with huh. expressing their anger and the reasons they feel angry. Huh. And you know, broadly, people of color feel then that I've spoken to have reacted to it more positively. Right. It's generally liberal white men who are most conflicted about the title. Huh. They're not sure about it. They don't know what it means. They're not comfortable with their own racism. But everybody else in America seems pretty okay with the fact that my, they're pissed off and have good reason to be. My husband was saying yesterday, he's like, I just felt, he's like, I just can't believe the president would say that. I just felt we were farther along. I'm like, oh my God, have you been watching none of my documentaries? None over the years, <laughs> none, zero. And he's like, I watched them all. But I, but I think you're, what you've tapped into, right, is a sense of wanting America to be a thing. Right. Right. Like, I think I think I think he's a white liberalish dude of like, I want America to be that place where I look out, I see a sea of this. And that must mean that it's all good and that it's OK. Right. It, if if we've got 50 percent women around the table, that must mean that it's not misogyny. It must mean that it's coming together where I think people of color and women are just like, no, this this sucks. This is unfair. We're we're pissed off about it and we want to talk about it. So I I anecdotally agree with your, what you're saying. When you, when you think about Trump and this moment in time and how it impacts all things race, because I don't think you can talk about Trump without talking about race for a variety of different reasons we've covered already. What do you, how, how do you think about this moment and explain this moment or shape this moment for your children? Right. As your children. Well, I, growing I don't up. actually I try not to. I think it's not a good thing for them to be involved in these discussions because I do think it's disheartening and it's yeah. sad. And I don't want so to. How do you, that but how do you as a parent, right, if someone's listening yeah, and they're raising me. a child of, of color in this environment with a racist president? Yeah. Would you, would you any advice or counsel or what? You know, I, I, I'm a big believer. I think my parents did a really good job of sometimes just ignoring stuff and not even talking about it. I think for sometimes for kids is really helpful. Yeah. I think if you have a lot of angst about it, I think it's actually upsetting, right? I think it's, I think it's upsetting. So I'd be like, listen, so he's an idiot. Anyway, you need to focus. You want to go to medical school. You should be doing <laughs> right, this. Right. You want to make, be a starter on the soccer team. You should be working out every day. Here are the things that you can do to make yourself better. You know, you need to do this and this and this. And don't worry so much about something that you can't. I mean, I think especially for children, they really can't affect change that way. Yeah. Um, I certainly go and march and be part of things you want to be part of, but I don't want, I would hate for kids to feel like they're internalizing a lot of hatred because I don't think it's productive, right? I don't, I don't know that you can feel a lot of hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of disappointment as a kid. And you can magically turn that into something. I just don't, I think I don't, I think you get depressed. I think it's, it's too overwhelming because you don't have a sense of agency as a child to feel like you even have the ability to do something with that. Who wants to believe that the president of the United States just hates you and everybody who looks like you? That's too much. So I'd be like, fuck him. You know, listen, you want to make the soccer team focus on that. That's helpful, though. Yeah, that there's insight totally. there and wisdom in your experience, especially given the, the world you've operated in over the last couple of decades, which includes sports. And I think part of why you have such a broad and deep following is because of your voice in the world of sports. I you, love that show, by the way. Real Sports is the best show. I, I love think Real it's Sports. The best show I grew on TV. up. I, I think so too. And I always say I, I anchor think it a is, different show. It is. I really do believe that. I mean, I, it's, I, it's part of why I was so excited to speak to you because I think Real Sports is exceptional. It's a great it's show. It's fantastic quality. 
Great show. But you mentioned soccer. Yeah. And the women's. Only because I have two soccer players. Well, we've oh, covered the, the women's, the women's World Cup on this show. We've yeah. covered Megan Rapinoe on this show in particular and how important her voice has been. Right. And I think this moment has been. I think this has been an incredibly historic moment in the history of sports. I think Megan Rapinoe is one of the biggest big time players we've ever seen. Right. Independent men or women. Her ability to deliver on right. the biggest right. stage imaginable in multiple World Cups right. is, I think, at the yeah. upper echelons of I athletic excellence. I love that Sports Illustrated cover, see where she's holding the hands of that little girl. I yeah. did a photo of it on my so phone. So br break it down. I After know, all that you've seen, that how big girl. is this moment? What does this moment mean? This moment with the World Cup and the women winning, our women winning, and Megan Rapinoe, and all of it. Like what? Can you break it down from yeah, your I perspective? Think I think what you're going to see as a whole in sports is that athletes feel empowered to speak about issues that are part of their experience, but outside of the gig that they have, right? I mean, what I think Megan Rapinoe has done very well uh, is to talk about things that are important to her that are not about soccer, right? And, and has an incredible credibility in that. And that follows Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James, right? And they're just sort of like, I know people are saying shut up and dribble. However, here's what we feel about this topic. And so I think she's just an added voice to giving credibility because she can back it up with the sports, right? She can get out there and say, yes, so I just went ahead and won the World Cup. Now I can come back and finish my sentence about that other thing that I was talking about, whether it's equal pay or um, just being disgusted with the president's racism or the president and you know his position on uh, gay and lesbian issues. So yeah, I think she just can back it up, right? And it's often people can't. They're big talkers, but they can't back it up. But I think tons of athletes have a lot to add and to say. And, and often they're just shushed because either they want to be, they feel like they don't want right. to lose that good cushy gig or people around them tell them not to. I mean, Serena Williams the other day, right? She said, you know, the day that I stopped fighting for, for equality for people who look like me and you was the day I'm, gonna, I'll, I'm dead. I'm dying. I'm in my grave, basically. That's a bad, yeah. that's a bad um, version of what she said. Hers yeah. was much more eloquent and smart. But, you know, like I, because the question was, you know, wouldn't you be doing better in tennis if you would just focus on the tennis and don't do the celebrity shit and stop doing the, the social justice shit, right? And she's kind of like, this is, who, this I is am. who I am, right? And I love that. And, and I mean, that's, I think that is history making. I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't do that. Is, is when we look back at the last kind of generation, it feels to me like this, this is not a new thing. This there was a blip. There was kind of a, 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 a blank spot of maybe 40 years, kind of from like the 80s till maybe five years ago, where athletes did shut up. And they, they were worried about sponsors. The rise of sponsorship and the right. rise of money in sports kind of coincided with the, with the, with the squashing of, of voices. Some of business has changed, yeah, right? Yeah, because there was a time when Muhammad Ali was, was very vocal politically. Ted Williams would be a fighter pilot in World War II. And the lack of athletes serving in the military also had something to do mm, with it. That right. they didn't feel, I think, maybe as connected or empowered as as the rest of the citizenry. Right. But do you, do you, do you, when you go way, Some way of that back, is the, the business, you go way, way right? back, is Today, it a blip or, or is it a return to what used to be sports in America where no, athletes were involved? No, or is this something I don't new? think it's a return. I think what's new about it is that brands themselves actually understand that their consumer wants to believe in the better self of the brand, right? right? People are not just, if you just need a t-shirt, you don't have to go buy Nike. You could go buy a million, there's a million, you could buy them on the street. Um, but they want to believe that this brand stands for something and not just good quality. I can wash it 10 times. You know, it, they, it, they want to believe that it stands for a thing. And, and by the way, um, not only, not only Nike, but every single brand, if you look at the, the, 
what was it? Is it Wayfair? What was the, the company that was being boycotted? Was it Wayfair that mm. was building beds for the um, for the um, the refugee centers? I don't know. And people, their yeah. own employees. I think there was an employee strike. Will you double check if I'm? I think that's right. Um, I would hate to be sued by Wayfair. Uh, and it's they, okay, Fireball will back you exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> but the employees were yeah. like, "You need yeah. to stop yeah. serving." No, I, it's not IKEA. It was some other thing. It is Wayfair. Okay, okay. So will you Google it for me? See if you can find it. But but it it was one of those brands, and basically, their own employees want to feel like they work at a place that has that believes something. In fact, companies. There's a trust meter that Edelman puts out every year. People trust their company to do the right thing more than they trust the government, Mm. and more than they trust NGOs. Mm. Right. So so companies understand that, and they recognize both in a competitive business environment, right, where it's easy to lose people, hard to hire. They need cust- They need their employees to feel like they're belonging to a bigger thing. It's not just, hey, here I am making widgets. It's, I make widgets because these widgets change people's lives, and I'm part of a bigger movement to change someone's life. I think that's a really, you know, so, and then also their consumers can buy a desk, a bed, anywhere. Why are you buying it from here? Well, this, these are people who believe a thing, and I'm aligned to that belief. So- Was I wrong? Yes, Wayfair. It was Wayfair. Okay, we're confirming that off, <laughs> off, right. off camera. I thought off so. I, you know, I do have a terrible memory, though. So no, so you got it. You got it. So I want to, I want to ask you just very specifically. Sure. Kaepernick. Yeah. What do you think of Kaepernick? And and I mean, I want to just also frame it up with with for folks who may not know. A week or two ago, uh, there was a Nike shoe that came out that had the original thirteen colony flag on it. Kaepernick. Uh, expressed objections and and in contrast to some of the presidential candidates I think Kaepernick's been very smart and crafty in the way he has handled his exposure maybe right but but he hasn't been out there doing almost any interviews you haven't interviewed him I don't think right nobody's interviewed him he's not on Twitter he's very careful or strategic in how he influences the discussion but when you break down what does Kaepernick mean right now maybe independent of himself because now he's become a representation of much more right, than he right. even himself has expressed. You know, I always think of him as a kind of a jumping off point, right? Like Megan Arapino was looking to him and I think taking a lot of inspiration from him. And she's sort of like, well, I could do that. I mean, I think he gives a lot of um, credibility and inspiration and bravery to people who feel like, wow, shit, this guy has risked it all to stand up for a thing. I'm not even risking that much and I can stand up and do something. Um, yeah, I thought that was a lot of, you know, uh, Tempest in a teapot about the the the, the flag, the, you know, I mean, that particular one, which I didn't even realize is used by a lot of um, white nationalists yeah. as a kind of a symbol. So he was sort of like saying like, hey, may not want to put Peppy the Frog on, on something. Yeah, Might but, come maybe, back to but bite I, you. maybe it's an overreach too, right? Because like yeah, a white nationalist be. wears something. I mean, we're going to run out of things to ban if we ban everything that white nationalists have co-opted at some point, right? If they're wearing yeah, the Nike have, swoosh, but I don't you could think, ban that as well. Yeah, but I, I mean, again, I don't think, I think if there was a Peppy the Frog, like right. let's say you were working, you were walking through the Nike um, you know, manufacturing plant one day right. and you saw it, you'd be like, Ooh, you guys might just, just so you know, you should know that people, you know, white nationalists have co-opted that. Yeah. You might say, but I, it's I, I honestly frog. didn't know that. Did you know that I before that? I did not know that. No, I, I think but most, apparently it's a thing. Yeah. And I think most of the country didn't know that. Right. So I guess you said you wish Kaepernick voted. Yeah. He doesn't vote. He didn't vote. And I just think it's a bad message. I think for a person who's a role model, 
and his mom's on Twitter, and I love her on Twitter, and we're like <laughs> Twitter buddies. But I do wish that part of his mess, you know, I'm not, I, I never believe that the fuck them, don't vote is the way. Mm. I look at the outsized advantage that evangelicals, who seem very non-Jesus-like at this moment in time, just saying, um, have. It's because they're aggressive about voting, right? So really, the right answer is get out there and vote. Get trains of people to vote. Get people to right. vote, 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 vote. That, right. that, to me, is much better than all these people are idiots, don't vote. That seems like a terrible message. So on that front, I really disagree with him. Yeah, I had no idea about the Betsy Ross flag. I wouldn't have even been able to identify the Betsy Ross flag, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, like, I, you know, if you'd asked me a month ago to draw a picture of it, I would have been yeah. like, mm, yeah, maybe 13 straight. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but who knew? But apparently uh, Nike thought it was enough of a problem for them to, um, to withdraw it. And I'm sure, you know, frankly, I bet that they withdraw tons of designs all the time. So football will be here before we know it. Yeah. State of affairs in America, we've covered at great length in media. But what's your assessment of the state of affairs in the NFL? You know what's so interesting? And I have to say, I don't watch a lot of football because I don't like to watch people crash into each other. My kids love it. And my son, Jackson, was dying to play football. And I would not allow it because uh, he's like a string bean. I think he'd just get killed. He's, he's tall and skinny. Um, I would like the Giants to be really good because I'm a big believer in rooting for the hometown. No matter what the sport is, I'm always like, wherever we are, we root for the hometown. Got to do it. And, um, and they've been challenging, but, um, but I, I, watch, I watch football only because my boys drag me, force me to take them to a game every time. You know what I'm loving, though, is lacrosse. Really? That new PLL yeah. lacrosse league. yeah. You feel like this is the lacrosse league that's going to break through? I don't know if it's through. the one, but I, right? we, it's like, I, it's like I wish ML, it's it like were. the predecessors to MLS, I right? I love the they idea of when it was paying break. people well, yeah. right? I mean, how do you sell But is there a market for it, right? Part of what they did was, for example, that they don't have a home team, right? right? Every lacrosse team in the PLL is kind of a free agent right. team in regards to city. They don't have home cities. Right. They just It's almost like an E-league. Because I don't think it right? can support it at this right, moment. Right. Um, but that was an innovative approach, right? Was to not give them a home team. So people don't have a home team to root for. You can kind of root for anybody. I will tell you when I go, used to watch the Long Island Lizards. Yes. I watched a lot. You were, you of, were a fan of the Long Island? Would they play at the Nassau Coliseum? Uh, no, they played they, at... Um, like Hofstra's, Hofstra. uh, the, Hofstra. Hofstra's football field. But you know what I love about the Long Island Lizards? They would take a photo with every single kid. They it's, would not go in until every single child. It's like minor league baseball. Amazing. You feel like the players Amazing. are Like they are clearly developing their their team and now my kids play it like lacrosse is becoming a huge it is. thing so is it and it wasn't that way when I, and I grew up in long island which yeah. was lacrosse land you know and it's really people are playing lacrosse out in california but it's also becoming the alternative to football yes the kids exactly. who you who would have played football 20 years ago when i was growing up you would have played football now they go to hockey and, or lacrosse and schools or are soccer their right? programs yeah. so i think a long way of saying, like, I actually think PLL has a really good chance because I just think there's a, a time now when people are interested in the sport a lot more because they're playing uh, and um, I think there's more access to it. So so sports and, and family and horses are a big I part do. of your I love, life. I wish I were better. I, I ask every guest what's something that makes them angry, but I also ask every guest, so that O'Brien, what's something that makes you happy? Oh, my gosh. I love riding well and I hate not riding well and I am a middle-aged lady so I find you lose control of your ability to move your body the way it wants to go like if you're losing your balance you just can't get it back when you're a 12 year old right you just swing your leg over you just do a thing you know my daughters are really good little riders but I 
just it's it's been a really hard road for me to be very solidly beginner to intermediate mediocre at riding when I really would like to be great and I watch people and I want to be them and I just I can't do it. Can you explain for people who don't know much about horses what kind of horses do you ride and what is it about that that gives you so much happiness? Ugh, so I've been around horses and I think they're magical. They're right? the best. They're there's the best. Kind of, there's and an they're... emergence of equine therapy yeah. now especially in the veterans community and there's um like I a like higher it as a being sport. kind of yeah, level, but like you do some pretty sport. intense stuff, right? I don't, but I watch people who do. Okay. I do very non-intense stuff, but I wish I were doing intense stuff. But my daughters are big riders. Okay. Um, I just like being in a sport where you have another living being that you have to operate with, right? You're driving a car. Your car is going to do what it does. You have to use your skills. You're sailing a boat. You got to use your skills. But a horse also has its own mind, right? A horse has its own. It might be having a good day. You have to work together as a team to figure out how to get over something collaboratively. And it's really, it's really hard, right? It's not just you take the right step. Are you moving the right way? It's are you getting your horse to move the right way? It's really freaking challenging. And then, of course, it's a, a live human being. So some, I mean, live animal. So animal. you have to, you know, actually, like, it's got to be happy and well cared for and not and be injury free and be in a good mood. And, you know, to watch people go over five foot jump. It's like the most amazing thing. And, and if you watch them, you'll see they can even go really slowly and they pull all the way back because you got to get the horse back on its back legs, which is what's going to get it going over the fence. I just think it's the dynamics of that are so uh, amazing. And the best riders in America are 50-year-old women. Mm. I mean, what sport are the very best people in the country? Middle-aged ladies and a guy. That's incredible, right? I mean, yeah, and, and you have no advantage being 19 over being 65. None. Zero. Can we, can we get the candidates to all ride horses? <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun to video? Like, we're oh, going to make I all the candidates some people. ride the horses. I like uh, Pete Buttigieg. I think he's interesting. Yeah. I wish that he were um, this apropos of nothing. But I, I wish, I think he's got a little bit of growth in him. He's young. Um, and sometimes I think he, he hesitates to answer things. Um, yeah, I've interviewed him a couple of times now, I, but I think he's a good person. I, um, you know who I really like is um, Bill Weld, Bill Weld, who's running on the Republican yeah, governor side. Governor of Massachusetts. I used governor. to work uh, for him. He owned some property out in Long really? Island when I was growing up, and one of my jobs is to measure spruce trees on Bill Weld's property um, as a scientific experiment. But like a lovely guy that who is. who I think people respect tremendously, and who um, I think they think he's he just is a, a good human being. Um, what's, what's next for you? So that you hosted one forum already for some of the did, candidates. We did. We'll probably do more of that. Um, we have a long way to go. The forum you, you, you hosted had no, four of the candidates. Yeah. We hosted one on, um, on crime, the crime bill and, um, and just crime in general F or BET. And then we did another one with four of the candidates. It was so funny. Again, another Elizabeth Warren. So she gets out, everyone else comes out and they wait for me to start. I start and she's like, Soledad. And then she turns her body fully away from me to talk to the audience yeah, like this. Yes. And I'm like, okay. And then she basically says, I want to thank you guys because it's the anniversary of the shooting that took place, uh, I think three years earlier and does an entire address, right? And then the entire time we're talking, she's only talking to the audience. It's kind of brilliant. Which, like, you, which I have to know, you have been doing throughout this interview. Is that right? And people go back and watch, you've actually been speaking to my cameras Ben and Andrea who are their camera crew who are filming this and playing it, to it, your it, audience yeah yeah and, but, but I that's think it's, a real like that's a uh, that 
Big props for me for that, right? Because she yeah, understands yeah. why she's there. Yeah. She's there to make her case to audience. But it's also an about understanding and having that kind of situational awareness of where your audience is and how many different places they're in. And, know and knowing you're on stage. The other right? people were guys. And yeah. if they had done Can, that to me, did, it would have looked very disrespectful. Did right? any a woman could do that, but a guy can't. Sorry. Did, did any candidates say no because it was on BET? No, uh-uh. What was it? So you got four No, no, of them, and the whole but, thing was it was a black, about um, economic uh, opportunities for black people. So yeah. I don't think... No, I, I, some people said no because they had already planned for something. Um, and so mostly it was just uh, conflicts. But no so, one said no. Because I was a part of the team that hosted and created the Commander-in-Chief Forum mm-hmm. back in 2016. We had Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on the Intrepid for what right. became the precursor to the debate. It was the first time they were in the same place before the first debate. Right. And there were all these stipulations about how they couldn't cross paths <laughs> and who could be on the ship and who couldn't be. Um, any insight into behind the scenes as we look toward the next debate? For your astute and experienced eye, what people no, can look to no. about the kind of behind the scenes or the strategy, right, of how these candidates will approach oh, the media. Oh, it's going to be forever. Do you know how early we are? Literally, we're going to be having this conversation forever for 10 million more months of just over and over in the media. But people want it. Like, right? Yeah, it's entertaining. You know, and the, and the, the ratings were there. to have conversations that were um, more substantive. I just don't know that a debate where I don't know that that's a really great format. Yeah, I, um, I would much rather have a, like a, I, I like, I like sit down conversations where someone can explain, right. As opposed to you get big points for the zinger, right. you get big points for the moment, you know, in real life it encourages the wrong kind of behavior. Exactly. It encourages so in the zingers. Life, right. Is right. that really valuable? Yes. Right. Sure. You're witty. You can win in repartee, but are you a fucking idiot? I mean, right. right? So, right, right. so uh, I think that that's problematic. I'm, much rather have somebody smart walk people through in an interesting way. I mean, it's what I liked about our conversation about economics was just people got to talk and you could push back on them, but it was not about zingers. It was about like, what is your actual strategy around something? Mm. Well, anything else folks? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Of course. So if you're in the military, I was wondering this today. Yes. And you, and I know I wouldn't military, get through this without you know, asking me sorry. some questions. Our military I, I'm excited is, about our military it. I'm is so diverse. Yes. So, what do members of the military, and, and I think President Trump really comes across as, a, as an idiot. I mean, he just doesn't really, yep. and not uneducated, but just someone who just says st- stupid things, uh, not a bright person. And he's your commander in chief. I mean, I, I know that when I've had a CEO of a company that I've worked for where I'm like, wow, I just I'm working for someone who's an idiot who really doesn't understand the issues. And it's terrifying because, you know, your livelihood is tied up in in sort of the decisions they make or the press conferences. I remember I once had a boss who talked about like women don't want to be executive producers. and We're all like, yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> uh, you know, but you, for military people, you're talking about life and death. You're talking about your family's well-being. This is not just. I have a job here at NBC News. You know, you're talking about 20 times that. How do people in the military feel when, regardless of where they are politically, the president, I don't think, is, does not come across as a thoughtful, measured, intelligent person, even if you disagree with yeah, no, his policies. I'm, I'm glad you asked scare this. the crap out of people? I'm, I'm glad you asked this because I've, I've thought a lot about this. And... Veterans and military politics are identity politics. And I think that's often lost because the civil military divide is so huge. There was a, a, a Green Beret that was killed over the weekend that hardly registered on oh, anyone's radar. Seventh, no idea. Seventh deployment. 
His seventh deployment, his first deployment is in 2002. Okay, so this is a guy who's been seven times, and I've been using the hashtag Forgotistan. But I push back on the question, and I propose this back at you, because how many times have you been asked, what do black people think about X? Oh, I and, can answer that, right, though. But I, but I am reluctant to answer it because I don't think that the military is a monolith any more than black people are or many more, more than women are. And what I've been trying to do or seeking to do, especially in the last couple of years where they become increasingly politicized, is say they are a reflection of who they are. And if you look at the demographics, they're pretty much reflective Everybody. of the same. They, they are overwhelmingly or they're disproportionately white and male. Mm -hmm. And people who are disproportionately white and male and older, if we talk about the veterans community, we're talking about 22 million people, right. which are a lot of older World War II Vietnam vets that are mostly men, mostly white. They will support Trump in the same way old white people will, oh, right? And so if we talk about enlisted young women who are Hispanic, right? Or if we go micro-target or zero down, you will get a different answer. We saw over the Obama administration that the enlisted people who are generally um, higher percentages of people of color tend to support Obama and Democrats more than Republicans do. So what I generally say is the military is America. Right. It's not as much of America as I wish it was, but it is reflective of America in the same way any other cross-section of America is. Now, there has been in the last 20 or 30 years, the officer corps has tended to go more Republican, mm -hmm. but there's also a higher percentage of libertarians in the military than probably in the general population. Huh. So what I generally say, so that is, I'm not going to generalize. When people say, hey, the military and veterans overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Oh, is that true? Well, veterans did vote for Trump more than Clinton, but veterans are mostly old white guys. Right. So old white guys in America... And if they tend to be from the South or the Midwest, we could, you know, cross it by geography as well or by income level. But if you're talking about middle class, lower middle class, lower upper class white men, if you take that out of their demographic, if you focus on that, that's going to get you your answer. Hmm. Now, they tend to be more aware of foreign policy issues, of defense, of issues like veterans affairs and defense spending. They probably right now know that we have an acting secretary of defense after replacing an actuary secretary of defense who replaced Mattis who resigned. That's been right? messy. So we haven't had a real but, Senate but, okay, confirmed. So let me push back on your pushback yeah, of my please, question, please. which would be my dad was in the military, um, not American military, Australian military. Um, but he was so, in which military? Australian. Oh, the Australian Sharpshooter in the Australian ah. military. Um, and I always wonder, and a professional rugby player uh, wow. before he became a professor, um, I always, but, but so much of the framing of the military, and I might be wrong about this, is around honor and integrity. And so many of the people that I've interviewed, and I haven't done a million pieces in the military, but a, a lot, maybe more than my fair share, um, regardless again of, of, and I wouldn't even tell, I couldn't even tell you people's politics, but I would say often, personal integrity is very important, That's right? True. Which is a very different yeah. thing than what yeah. you, than what you believe, who you voted for. You I know, think it's like, true. They consider themselves in many ways by default in some, some circumstances, the guardians of the country, right? My, a friend of mine once said um, that, that veterans are like, are to America what, um, what, what the clergy is to faith. Right? They consider themselves almost like the samurai because they become this professional class of military where we do have values. We talk about honor and integrity so, and, and personal again, care. An honor things. code is something that Wayfarer may not have. Nike may not have. So there's there's an assumption that you're signing up for something. You're self-selecting. bigger than yourself. It's bigger than yourself. Right? And you expect the, your leaders to uphold that same kind and of And leaders level. step down as yeah. someone did the other day. I think what they're day. most, and again, if I were going to generalize, I, I'm reluctant to do that. What they are increasingly concerned about is the civil-military divide 
which mm-hmm. is unprecedented. The, the civil-military divide, which is extended to our politicians right. who haven't served, right? And that is unprecedented. They're concerned about a commander-in-chief who hasn't served, replacing another commander-in-chief who hasn't served. And I think that's something they look for. They know that there are four candidates running for president in Sestak, Tulsi Gabbard, um, Buttigieg, and, uh, and Seth Moulton, who are all post-9-11 combat veterans. I think the moment that we looked to was when Tulsi Gabbard had kind of an ownership over the defense discussion in the first debate, mm-hmm. because she was the only person on stage that served. Right. She's the only female combat veteran ever to right. run for president. So I think they know that. Right. And, and similarly, I think if you talk about race, people look for certain kinds of language or kind of hat tips or an understanding or a wokeness, right? Like there, there's a level of military wokeness that you can have. And either you have it or you don't. Right. Um, how you get there is kind of up to your own journey. But I think that's what veterans and military folks are looking for. I do find them to be increasingly a political jump ball. That's mm-hmm. why so many of our listeners are vets right. and our military or military families are first responders. They feel increasingly underrepresented by both parties. So right. that's part of why this show, I think, has gotten traction with them because they feel unheard. Um, and it's compounded by their extreme sacrifice. Right. We know friends that are in Afghanistan and Iraq right now. And I think they continue to be maybe most concerned about the fact that that's not even mentioned, right? It's so, craziness, right? right? I mean, and by the way, bringing us back to the media, right? Yeah. Like that's something that pisses me off, that that so much time is spent on the drama and the chaos. And we'll do another two days, but probably no more than two days on is a president a racist, that there's just a whole bunch of other shit that we're just going to miss, right? Because- no one's really reporting. It's just on following well, yeah, the chaos. Let's, let's poll the military and see if they think the president's a racist because that's where the shit you know, hits the fan, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. Like, if, Do you trust someone to be your commander-in-chief if you're a person of color? If you're a person of color or you're... We've talked a lot about uh, in, in the show and, and in my work about the trans ban. If you're someone who, who is concerned about equality, is coming from the LGBT community, do you feel like the commander-in-chief cares about you, cares about your life, cares about your, your existence. If you ban trans people who are actively serving right now in the military, it's not like we're allowing them in. You're basically kicking them out after the previous administration allowed them in. That is, I think, a, a critical fault line for the military and not just the people who are represented, not just people of color, not just gay people, but the broader kind of aware community who considers them brothers and sisters. Yeah, it's so the integrity thing that yeah. just bums me out. Yeah. I mean, truly, again, and it, I, I well, can't be more clear that I can think people have integrity and disagree with yeah. a million of their decisions. Yeah. I feel like there's very there are very few people who want to stand up and say an, an unpopular thing because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's yeah. just such a bummer. Well, Talking to you has not been a bummer. It has been enlightening <laughs> and, and inspiring. I like the, way the staff has the, had, all, had finished all their drinks. I and, like and it. It is this, toasty. As, as is tradition in this show, we have gifts for you. Oh, I love this. And More fireball. There is, uh, there's three different categories of the gifts. And I'm, we're on audio. So first of all, you asked if Yay, you could have a shirt. angry shirt. You Thank do have you. an angry American shirt. Love it. Um, they're American made by the veterans at Oscar Mike. I love it. And then this has been a tradition so far in the show. The peeps. But if you had to choose Soledad O'Brien, Peeps, we started this because it was around Easter. Yes. And I, want, I think it's a bit of an insight into who you are. But if you had a choice between pink, blue, and yellow, which color of Peeps would you choose and why? It's not a yes or no question. Who knew they were always gluten-free and fat-free and yellow? Yellow is your choice? Because chicks are yellow. Peeps I think are, it's weird that people would pick blue ever. Like who would eat a blue chick? That's weird. 
I, I love that answer. So Sarah Jessica Parker was on a previous episode and called Yellow Peeps the OG of Peeps. Oh, right. Exactly right. Like the original right. Yes. Peeps. She, and she would be right. And she was right. Okay, so no question. And then we have, it's also tradition, we have two bottles for you. <laughs> the first one is I small. I recognize this one. The, the first one, I'll help you open it if that, if that makes it a little easier. This is for us. So the little one is just building on your, your favorite here. Oh, the little one is, is a fire, <laughs> more fireball for the road. I have right? so much of this in my handbag that if people are going to think well, I'm crazy, I, I love I it. I appreciate the boldness of it. You've been bringing the fire on Twitter. You've been bringing the fire to America. And I speak. I pick a whiskey each. And then you're like, and actually grown-up people drink this stuff yes. and not Fireball. And then I pick an American, bro. an American-made whiskey. I love it. And I go to the liquor store, try to find, find one that speaks to me. And this one is called Redemption. Oh, I love it. And I feel like we are all looking for some redemption. Yes. And we continue Thank to look you. for inspiration and leadership. And you have provided that. Thank you. And I Especially, love carrying lots of alcohol around with me. Well, we can help you carry it. But I also want to thank you for the example you've set, especially for so many people oh, who are looking for it's going to end soon, voices. right? And it's now gonna, I'm in my egg chair. It's going to end the interview or the country? Uh, the country's not going to end. I have tremendous faith in our country. Um, we used to hang people. Think of all the people that people used to hang and then they take pictures of it and turn them into postcards. Like, that's pretty disgusting. So I feel like yeah. we've got a long way to get there. Um, but it's got it like the chaos, I hope, ends. And I wish the media would take, do its part in ending the chaos as opposed to using chaos to sell newspapers and shitty cable shows. If you were going to make a final prediction, does Trump get reelected or not? Too early to say. Listen, I think... That's a Trump answer. So yes or no. <laughs> yes or no. So know, that, right? Right? will Trump um, get reelected? Uh, uh, truly, I, I agree with you. Too early to say is always a cop out, but we really are early on. And a lot of it's going to be who's running, who's, I don't know, who's he running against. And... Um, and what happens in the country? I think it's disturbing the 30% of the people, 40% of the country really supports someone who's overtly a very terrible racist person. But, you know, that is, and probably has always been that way, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. we've just given license to things that used to be like inside voice, don't say that out loud, have mm. just come out Or maybe the it's public. a cleansing. Maybe it's a giant teachable moment and we need to rip it off and put it out in the open so that we can show people what it looks like and call it what it is. And I've always found that Obama, you know, as an independent, I used to wake up and look at Obama and say, this is a person that my children can look to for inspiration, for an example. And Trump is the anti-example. He's right. the kid in the classroom who say, don't be like Johnny. I do, but I don't even don't think about like Trump. Trump. I think about all the elected officials. And as many of them who, we can say, don't be like say now. say nothing. You know, right? It's the it's the Paul Ryan's, right? Paul Ryan or Lindsey Graham right now, is, well, who Graham is even is an enabler at this point, right? Crazy. But Paul Ryan is like to me is a face of a of cowardice. When you know better, you write and do interviews talking about how you know better. You're quoted saying you know better, and yet when push comes to shove, when the moment to stand presents itself, you decide I can't do it. Like that's just American cowardice to me. I did that, which is why again back to military. Like to me. It, I know nothing about the military and I've never served, but I always feel like that's the thing that, that people talk about, right? That moment when your, your brothers rush in, so you rush in because that's what this is fucking about, having each other's back, right? I mean, that's what people describe. And, and I feel like, wow, this is the opposite of that. This is just messy, scared people, scared for just their careers, right? Not scared for life and death, not scared because someone's holding their family at gunpoint. They're just scared because maybe they won't get elected to the Senate again. Mm -hmm. That's sad. Well, I think you've given people a lot to think about. 
You've been a source of inspiration, especially as a role model for so many people coming up in the media. And even for me, as someone who's going from the world of activism into the world of media, which is daunting as hell. It feels crazier than leaving the military, going into the civilian world. But you've been incredibly important and inspiring um, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. And for I'm incredibly me. grateful for I your... like that it's 90 degrees in here. I it's... feel like you should charge people for a spa. Most I feel like people I got like a sauna. But no, you told like me you were you were you were excited about in it. In the middle I started getting a little schwitzy, but I actually I feel like my skin is very soft now. Mine is too. Right. I think yeah. Right. It's yes, all good. Yes. It's well real folks good. can watch the video <laughs> online. Soledad O'Brien can follow her on Twitter. Uh, she is an inspiring, important, and I think iconic American who's making a positive impact every day. Thank you so much it's for my joining. My pleasure. Us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You know the deal. And if not, and you're new, here it is. Every show, I offer a way of converting your righteous and understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and will make a difference. I've got two this week. And like this show, they're packed with the four eyes of integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Number one, get and read the incredible graphic novel called March about John Lewis. When things are rough, we should always look for the helpers. That's the powerful and always true message from Mr. Rogers that I've shared with you in past episodes of this show. The helpers are the leaders and the helpers are out there even now and always. Congressman and American icon John Lewis is that kind of leader. And he has been for decades. Ever since he was a young man, John Lewis has been bravely fighting racism. If you don't know, John Lewis is the congressman for Georgia's 5th Congressional District. And he's a legendary civil rights leader who marched with Martin Luther King. He's simply one of the most courageous and important Americans alive today. And he's especially important right now. As racial tensions continue to skyrocket, fueled by our racist president and those that are complicit in supporting his racism, John Lewis is again on the front lines for America. John Lewis was born in 1940 to a family of sharecroppers in Alabama. In the 1960s, he was chairman of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and one of the so-called Big Six leaders of the groups who organized the 1963 March on Washington. The Big Six were John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, and A. Philip Randolph. It should probably be called the Big Seven to also include Dorothy Height, who was the historic president of the National Council for Negro Women for over 40 years. But John Lewis was a pillar of this leadership team and an icon in the civil rights movement who helped end legalized segregation in the United States. He's been recognized for his heroism and leadership far and wide, including with the highest civilian honor in the United States, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. At age 21, he was one of the 13 original Freedom Riders, seven whites and six blacks who were determined to ride from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans in an integrated fashion, facing huge danger and massive violence. They didn't just face nasty tweets or posts on Facebook. They stared down and experienced real violence. In Rock Hill, South Carolina, 
John Lewis was the first of the Freedom Riders to be assaulted. He tried to go into a whites-only waiting room, and two white guys attacked him, injuring his face and busting up his ribs. In Anniston, Alabama, where I went to basic training, actually, the Freedom Riders bus was firebombed after the Ku Klux Klan members deflated its tires and forced it to stop. And in Birmingham, the riders were mercilessly beaten. Violence on top of violence. City after city. Still, they pushed on. And in Montgomery, Alabama, an angry mob met the bus. And Lewis was hit in the head with a wooden crate. He thought he was going to die. He was left lying at the Greyhound bus station in Montgomery, unconscious. For his entire life, John Lewis has been fighting racism. It's a real-life superhero story. And like the very best superhero stories, it's got a comic book, or in this case, a graphic novel. The graphic novel of John Lewis's life is called March, and it's amazing. It won the National Book Award. Now, I grew up reading comics and graphic novels, and I'm a pretty tough critic of them. And this is one of the best I've ever seen, and definitely the most important one. About 60 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. edited a 16-page comic book about the Montgomery bus boycott. He gave it out by hand in churches, schools, and at nonviolence workshops. It dramatized the fledgling movement and its tactics to a generation of future leaders, including a young John Lewis. Now, John Lewis is continuing that legacy and using comics to educate and inspire a new generation. Along with Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell, Congressman Lewis created a transformative work that brings his memories of the civil rights movement to urgent new life. And that's what March is all about. It was the first graphic novel to ever win the National Book Award. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. It's a three-book set. And you can get book one of the series in paperback online for only eight bucks. You can get the whole trilogy for about 30 bucks. It's being used and taught in schools nationwide. I gave it as a Christmas gift a few years back, and I've given it to countless young people in my life. And March has never been more important. I had the tremendous honor of meeting John Lewis a few years ago. It was backstage at NBC when we were both on the Rachel Maddow show, actually. Meeting him was one of the most humbling, most important, most memorable meetings I've ever had in my life. He's my hero. And he's America's hero. And John Lewis knows racism when he sees it. And you should too. Hear his words. Here's Congressman Lewis on the floor of Congress this week. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise with a sense of righteous indignation to support this resolution. I know racism when I see it. I know racism when I feel it. And at the highest level of government, there's no room for racism. It sows the seeds of violence and destroy the hopes and dreams of people. The world is watching. They are shocked and dismayed because it seems we have lost our way as a nation, as a proud and great people. We are one Congress, and we are here to serve one house, the American house, the American people. Some of us have been victims of the stain, the pain, and the hurt of racism. In the 50s and during the 60s, segregationists told us to go back when we protested for our rights. 
They told ministers, priests, rabbis, and nuns to go back. They told the innocent little children seeking just an equal education to go back. As a nation and as a people, we need to go forward and not backward. With this vote, we stand with our sisters. Three were born in America, and one came here looking for a better life. With this vote, we meet Gentlemen, our moral obligation expired. to condemn hate, racism, and bigotry in every form. Thank you. John Lewis must be heard. Always. And especially now. He's an original angry American. He's angry for all the right reasons. And he's taken righteous action always. And you should too. So get March, the graphic novel, ASAP. And give it to every kid in your life you care about. That's my action number one for this episode. And here's action number two. Check out and support another guy named Lewis. J.T. Lewis for Connecticut State Senate. Now, he's not related to John Lewis by blood, but they're related in spirit in that they're both angry Americans stepping into the fray. Just like John Lewis once, J.T. Lewis is a young man answering the call to lead when his country and his community needs him. And anytime an angry American steps up to make a difference, we should support him. And J.T. Lewis embodies what this show and what this movement are all about. J.T. Lewis is 19 years old, and he's running for state senate in Connecticut. Why should you care? Why should you support him? Because J.T. Lewis is the brother of Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting victim, Jesse Lewis. Jesse Lewis was only six years old when he was killed at Sandy Hook. Six years old. He was in the first grade. And also, like Congressman John Lewis, Six-year-old Jesse Lewis was a hero. Jesse Lewis shouted for his classmates to run when the gunman paused to reload at Sandy Hook. And Jesse Lewis was shot and killed moments later. Little Jesse Lewis had just seen his teacher shot and killed. And instead of running, he urged the others to free, while the gunman, whose name I won't mention, put a new clip into his semi-automatic rifle. At six years old, Jesse Lewis did that. As a shooter was destroying lives, six-year-old Jesse Lewis was fighting to save him. He yelled, run, run. Then the shooter reloaded and shot him in the head. Jesse Lewis used his last few moments on earth to save his friends. Jesse Lewis stepped up at six years old. At six years old, he faced down evil and made a difference. Young Jesse Lewis was a hero. He answered the call. And now, his big brother JT is doing the same at 19. JT said that after the shooting, he and his mom called then-Republican state rep Tony Huang to, quote, help prevent future tragedies. But the state senator never called him back. He never even called him back. Huang went on to win a state senate seat in 2014. And J.T. Lewis has decided 
he's going to take him on. And he announced his candidacy on Twitter this week. After the Sandy Hook shooting, a mom and a little boy who had just lost a son and a brother made a call to their state senator. They wanted to help prevent future tragedies, but the senator never returned their call. That person is our current state senator, Tony Huang, and the little boy who just wanted someone to hear his mom's calls for help has grown up. My name is JT Lewis. On December 14th, 2012, a shooter entered my brother's classroom and fired bullets until the gun jammed. In that fleeting moment, Jesse yelled for his classmates to run while he stayed behind to defend his teacher. Nine of his friends ran. Jesse is credited with saving nine lives. I share this story because I believe that inside every single one of us is that same innate courage we never even knew we had to do something extraordinary. And to honor Jesse, I've decided to be courageous enough to run for state senate in my home state of Connecticut. In the months and then years following the loss of my brother, we met with governors, senators, mayors, and secretaries of education. We even met President Obama, the whole time hoping someone would stop the violence we so personally experienced. Our leaders are in it for themselves, to take pictures and feel an inflated sense of importance. I'm entering the fray because only with real leadership will Connecticut see the change we are so desperate for. I'm young, but I know how to lead. Damn right you do, JT. And we've got your back. JT is a Republican and has been a supporter of President Donald Trump and met with him for a roundtable on school security at the White House in December. And even though I'm obviously not a fan of Trump, I encourage you to support anyone from any party that can make a difference and move our country forward. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, even a Communist. Labels shouldn't be as important to us as leadership. Leadership over labels. Let's put that on a t-shirt and make it another one of our rally cries. Leadership is about courage. And young JT Lewis is showing courage. He's stepping up. He's honoring his little brother. He's inspiring others. And he deserves our support. So if you're in his district in Connecticut, vote for him, volunteer, donate, help him win. If you're not in Connecticut, follow him on social media and go to his campaign website. It's jt4ct.org. That's the letters JT, the number four, ct.org. Share it far and wide and donate. Give the kid a few bucks and help make America a better place. Do what you can to help him help others. That's what leadership's all about. And that's what America's all about. Jesse and JT's mom, Scarlett, was and continues to be a hero. And she broke it down. The following week... I got up and I said, there's, you know, everybody's asking, what can we do for you? And I said, there is something that you can do for us. Um, This whole tragedy started with an angry thought in the shooter's head. And an angry thought can be changed. So I'm going to ask you to actively change one angry thought into a loving thought. Consciously do this every day. And in doing so, you'll make yourself feel better. You'll positively impact those around you. And through the ripple effect, you'll make this a better world. Listen to Scarlett Lewis. Listen to Jesse and JT Lewis. Listen to John Lewis. And turn your righteous anger into positive change. It's powerful. And it's important, especially right now. And it's contagious. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share... Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. 
All right, this has been a packed episode, an important episode. Thanks for sticking with us and being a part of it. And big thanks to a few folks who helped make it happen. First, the Classic Car Club Manhattan for again hosting our interview for this episode and hosting them all year long. They're an awesome crew. And if you're ever in New York or London, be sure to check them out. And they may be coming to other cities soon. Soledad O'Brien for being our guest and for requesting Fireball Whiskey, which is noteworthy and should be thanked. Uh, And her team at Starfish Media. Mizzen and Maine, our new founding sponsor of this show. Awesome people, awesome products. They make awesome shirts. And they're an American company. And as I've told you before, J.J. Watt digs them. uh, Phil Mickelson digs them. I dig them. And I think you'll dig them if you check them out. And they help make this show possible. So please show them some love. Check them out at comfortable.af. The best URL around. But that's Mizzen and Maine. Check them out. Big thanks to Righteous Media, the company that powers this show, my company and my crew. So big thanks to Eric Schonborn, Chris Rosenthal, Mercy Rich, and the whole team at Righteous Media. Huge thanks to Bill Schultz for producing and editing this episode and working his magic yet again now and throughout this whole season. Thanks to Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Check out all the new designs they've got for us at angryamericans.us. Made in America. Uh, Shipping is free, over 60 bucks. And there's some really great designs, super comfortable. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I want to thank a few Angry Americans for listening. So number one, Joe Hernandez, who tweets at JDEZ54 from Pensacola, Florida. He's actually my old buddy from the Army. And I want to give him a shout out. He's been supportive. He's a combat veteran, uh, does IT portfolio management. He's a big fan of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the L.A. Lakers and the Dodgers, which is weird, but still, I support him. He's a proud husband to Nicole and the father of Destin and Kennedy. Uh, He had a great tweet. He said, Angry Americans needs a show about being the parent of young children and how angry we are at all the political theater that doesn't help the world become a better place. He said, get angry for our kids' future. Hashtag angry American parents. Great one. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. Uh, Next up. Stace Robles, who tweets it at Stace Robles. She's a proud mom and wife from Milpitas, California. She loves God, family, uh, and her little sheets. I don't know what that means, but she's from Milpitas, California. And she checked out the episode with Malcolm Nance and loved it. It, She said, uh, listen to your interview today. Fascinating episode. Thank you for your service. Uh, I assume she's talking to Malcolm Nance, who is a Navy veteran. If you haven't gone back and checked out that episode on Iran, definitely check it out he's also got some crazy spy stories and is just a really interesting dude uh next up big thanks to carrie summer who tweets at, at carrie summer she's from nyc she's the ceo of raise which is a tech comms and growth startup uh she's an impact investor and advisor to the board at red bear angels she's the host of the pitch factor podcast uh and she tweeted that she just caught up with paul reikoff podcast angry americans appreciate the four eyes you deliver information integrity inspiration and impact well done hashtag download now thanks to you carrie for all the support and finally the last listener i want to give a shout out to is john bernthal the john bernthal yes awesome actor and badass you may know him from uh the walking dead fury uh, cesario the accountant baby driver and you may know him as the punisher frank castle in the punisher the netflix series i grew up reading the punisher comic book which is perfect given our talk about march earlier uh but john bernthal is frank castle he's a great actor and a great dude And he will join us in a future episode. So get ready for that. Thank you all for tuning in. And as always, 
thank you to my family, my amazing wife and two boys. We had an amazing vacation in Maine. And that is one of the most amazing places on earth. If you've never been, definitely check out Maine and check out a place called Lake Sebago. It's a true national treasure, especially for fishing, camping, kayaking. And if you're in or around Maine or you want a place to go, check out the city of Portland, another true national treasure. It's hard to find a better place in the world in the summer than Portland. It's one of my happy places. uh, And and in particular, being outside the Portland Lobster Company on the outdoor deck, eating amazingly fresh fried shrimp, watching my kids soak up the live music and drinking a Downey cider and an Allagash. It's an incredible place. And I love walking along the water uh, and getting an ice cream after that at Beals or Captain Sam's. But we're back in New York City now, and I'm excited to soak up the summer in New York with my wife and boys. It's hot, but it's also awesome, especially for live music, outdoor festivals, and baseball. Uh, And hopefully, the Blasio will keep the lights on. Uh, But most of all, and as always, my deepest thanks to you for tuning in, especially for this important episode on race and so many of the other episodes this season. If you dig this show, please tell your friends to check it out. And check out angryamericans.us. We have video from all of our interviews. Uh, Friends have told me that they were not aware of that, so go back and check out the videos. You can see Inside the Car Club. You can see the one-on-one interview with Soledad O'Brien, with Malcolm Nance, with Peter Berg, and so many others. Uh, You can also get yourself some of the dope Angry Americans merch and sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of goodness. And if you're on an Apple device and you like the show, please leave a quick review and let us know uh, that you care. And keep the feedback coming on social media, hashtag Angry Americans. I see you, I hear you, I'm with you, and I'll keep you updated. Next week, we will be back with a fresh new interview from another important, inspiring, or iconic American, and it's another one you're not going to miss. So stay tuned, subscribe, and share, and we'll keep this movement growing week by week. And remember, it's okay to be angry, especially right now. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. And we're in it together. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Really, especially right now.